Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, January the 9th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Is everybody fastened? Wasn't it? Uh, help me with the terminology here. What's the old saying? Fasten the hatches? Batten, batten, down, batten down the batten hatches. Down yeah. the hatches. What am I saying fasten? Well, I mean, well, there, there's another saying. <laughs> fasten when your seatbelts. Fasten your seatbelts. Batten down the hatches. Um, the wind may blow today. and Public so sector say. employees, probably to a higher percentage, won't be going to work. You private sector schmucks, get at it. Just do the best <laughs> oh, you can. Nice. Um, that's the way the world works. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Yeah. Uh, yeah, good morning after that. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, schmucks. Well, I mean, anyway. Uh, Last night was an example of the issues facing college football. When you watch the NFL Saturday and Sunday, and then you watch the college football championship game last night, you see the problem. Now, but the product is inferior, dramatically inferior. It's less interesting. The quality of play is obviously not as good. They're quasi-amateurs playing college football today. And blowouts are fairly common and, and and expected in some of these um in some of these games. It's um it's officially the end, uh I guess officially the beginning of a strange new world in college football that will include beginning this year, Oklahoma, Texas in the SEC, Washington, Oregon, Southern Cal, UCLA, all in the big ten. Um Stanford and UCAL, members of the ACC, that's right. The teams that border the Pacific Ocean are now members <laughs> of the Atlantic um, Coast Conference. Who are the big winners? I don't know. don't have any idea. Um, it'll be very interesting in a 12-team playoff how competitive some of these schools are. Some of these conferences have dominance over the others. I mean, I've said it. The Gamecocks have a seat at the big boy table. Let's see what they do with it. I don't have any idea. Will they successfully Ah, evolve in this new era of college um, football in the NIL transfer portal area uh, era of college football. But last night was just to me an example. I'm a football bozo. I mean, as the bad boy likes to say, I'm a football bozo. I mean, basketball, eh, okay. I mean, it's, it's cute and it gives the recruits something to do when they come, you know, to visit your school for a football visit. But, um, but football is where, to me, um, the most interesting game is played. It's um, it's a microcosm of life in general. Um, I'm not saying competition doesn't exist in basketball or baseball. I certainly believe it does. But down south, football has historically reigned supreme, especially when the Gamecocks accepted an invitation to the SEC. You kind of you were forced. Football prioritization was forced upon you, whether you liked it or um, or not. But it's just it's not an interesting sport. I mean, it's not an intriguing storyline. Um, there are too many bad games. There are too many bad conferences. There are too many bad matchups. There are too many. Um, there are too few teams that legitimately have a chance. I mean, I think I read going into this past weekend, seventy percent of all NFL teams had an outside chance or inside to make the playoffs. I mean, the in, the the NFL has figured out parity reigns supreme. Um, you know, f- keeping fan bases interested, keeping these metro- big metropolitan cities interested is the way to go. That's why they let the worst teams draft first. They have things like salary caps. And I understand uh, teams manipulate, distort, and they 
defer payments and salaries and I mean that you know Tom Brady was famous for to keep receivers in place at the Patriots and even in Tampa Bay he would say hey you know I want my money but you could wait till later and in fact after I finish playing you could pay me some of the money uh, in order to keep a competitive team together um, some of that's got to happen I did see yesterday I guess the most interesting news to me Rev is the University of Florida hired a former associate AD from Texas A&M to be their NFL front office guru. Mm. So the University of Florida now officially has an NFL front office. And it, it, it frustrates me to no end that my beloved Gamecocks have done nothing in regards to building the front office model. I guess they think the um, that they'll catch up in tradition with Alabama, Auburn, Texas, LSU, Georgia, um, good luck with that. It was a chance to be a little bit unique and different. It was a chance to do something that no other schools were doing. We knew what Missouri and Ole Miss were doing in regards to NFL, NIL, and transfer portal. Um, I don't want. I don't want to go on and on to belabor the point. But anyway, um, the Michigan Washington game was just not interesting at all. I mean, it really was not. If you know anything about football and you watch the first ten minutes of the game you realize one team was a good bit better than the uh, than the other. I guess the championship game, Rev, Michigan-Alabama. I mean, those two teams played to a um, kind of a draw within overtime. Um, fourth down, Alabama didn't make it. So, um, you know, Washington obviously not the second-best team in all of college football, but they made um, a run and had a, a stellar season from a transfer portal quarterback that, uh, <laughs> that got over to Washington. They'll now be... In the Big Ten, uh, but they, they won't have the easy run in the regular season like they did uh, along with Oregon in the Pac-12. And um, it'll be interesting to watch Stanford and Cal, you know, transition to being a member of the Atlantic Coast Conference. If I'm not mistaken, and I could be wrong here, I think Clemson this year in 2024 plays either Stanford or Cal. But I mean, that kind of um, scheduling – I guess, you know, you, 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 you ramped up the scheduling. I mean, it normally takes four to five years to get some of these things, you know, ironed out and, and, and put together. But since all these conferences are realigning and teams are leaving and leaving one conference, going to another, some are floating around out there in the ether. Don't know where they'll, where they'll end up playing, but there's no doubt there, there's no doubt that the end of an era was last night and the beginning of another, this strange new world of um of college football, do you like it? I like it better than the old. I mean, I do. I like it better than the older model when the kids were not getting taken care of um, above the table. I mean, there was a lot of taking care of kids under the table. We know some of the um, especially down to the south, some of the African American churches were used to funnel money to certain players at certain times. Um, now you can do it above board. allegedly. Well, I mean, uh, no, no, allegedly, <laughs> you know better than that. I mean, th- th- there were some schools just better at it, and those schools who were better at it don't have that advantage. That'll be interesting to watch the schools in the new era struggle, and and I, you know, you won't ever be able to prove this, but the struggle could be a result of now everything is above board. These schools were really good at taking care of players under the table, had networks and and associates willing to do certain things at certain times, and they reach the pinnacle of college football. Now everybody can do it. It's above board, but it's not an interesting product. 
I mean, I love the game. I love tailgating. I love the pageantry of SEC football. But the NFL is a far more interesting and unique uh, product. 843-661-0900. How late did you stay up? I watched the halftime. Yeah. Yeah, I crashed at half. Um, I made it the fourth quarter. You did? Yeah. Well, it was a blowout, wasn't it, 34-13 or something like yeah, that? Well, at the very, at, I guess late in the fourth quarter is when uh, Michigan scored a couple of more. Well, I mean, it was, in, it was within honesty, a touchdown in the fourth quarter. But, I mean, in all honesty, you know, Michigan left scoring opportunities on the table in the yeah. first half. I mean, it could have easily been 24-3. to And I was really looking forward to watching the Washington quarterback because, I, you know, I saw him in the in the semifinal game, and I said, oh, man, this guy's pretty pretty special. And wasn't uh, so special against a good defense. Just wasn't there. Yeah. No. He wasn't so special against a defense with a bunch of dudes. Um, dudes are the answer to everything in football. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, the team with the most dudes, and Michigan had a lot of dudes. And I'll say this, as, a, as an SEC homer, Michigan was the better team all year. I mean, they, they were the best team in America, so we got it right. I mean, there, there was no odd upset. There was no weird matchup. I mean, Michigan beat Alabama, who beat Georgia. I mean, I think the best four teams in America were probably, you ready? Michigan, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, maybe. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen a championship game that was Michigan and Georgia, for example? Yeah, I think those are the two best teams, but Alabama beat Georgia. Yeah. You know, that's the um, that's, that's what we need in football. We need some of these things happening like that. The 12-team playoff will be interesting. Um, how likely is it that an eight seed, I mean, we're, our 12 seed beats a four seed or a five. I think the four teams get buys, but the uh, the 12 or the five seed will be an interesting an interesting game. Here's, here's a better question to ask a Gamecock fan. You're a Gamecock fan. I'm a Gamecock fan. What is the the worst record an SEC team can have and make a fourteen a twelve team playoff? Hmm, twelve team playoff. I mean, there's no doubt nine and three can yeah. make it. I mean, can an eight and four SEC or Big Ten team make the playoff? What if you've got here's where we're headed? What if you've got ten and two Clemson or eight and four Ole Miss? I mean, who makes that playoff? I think the ten and two Clemson team gets the nod over the eight and four Ole Miss team. But what about nine and three Clemson? And eight and four, Ole Miss. I think Ole Miss gets the nod. I just think those two conferences are going to be in such a dominant place, the Big Ten and the SEC, not just monetarily. I mean, we know the money advantage they're going to have over everybody else. But the um, I don't know the notoriety and the the attention of the college football world will basically be on. I've asked this question before, and nobody's given me a, a good answer. Give me five football programs next year, well, this year now, Give me five football programs beginning in this college football season, not of the Big Ten, not of the SEC, that are honestly relevant. I mean, name five schools, name five teams in college football today. Beginning today, I mean, the old is out. Now we're in the new 12-team playoff, the super conferences, Oklahoma, Texas are now in the SEC, um, USC West, UCLA, Oregon, and uh, uh, Washington are now in the Big Ten. So name five teams not in one of those two conferences that you can honestly say has a degree of relevancy in college football. Clemson would be one. No doubt. Florida State would be another. No doubt. Give me three more. Is it Oklahoma State? Is it Texas Tech? Is it, uh, I mean, it's not Stanford. It's not Cal. It's not Colorado. No. 
Um, I mean, Clemson to Florida State without question. I mean, I'll tip that to, to our, our arch rival Clemson Tigers. But name three other teams. I mean, I came up with Oklahoma State. I mean, they, they could be that other team. Um, Notre Dame. There you go. We're at four. Oklahoma State, Notre Dame, Clemson, Florida State. Help me. I mean, I need one more. I need five <laughs> teams, not in the Big Ten or, or SEC, that are relevant at the national level in college football. And I've come up with four. Notre Dame, um, Oklahoma State, Clemson, and Florida State. Who am I missing? Is there another team to round out a top five of teams not in the two conferences that are relevant? I How many? Here would be a Vegas odds. I mean, Vegas will make odds on anything. How many of the 12 teams in this year's – I mean, we're in 2024 now. So, with the 2024 football season – when they pick a 12-team playoff, how many of those teams will be from the Big Ten and SEC? What's the over-under? Eight? Seven? I mean, that's kind of my number. I mean, it'll be better than half. Will it be eight? Eh. Will it be nine? Probably not. Um, who will be the others? I think they've got some language in there that'll take care of a Liberty or a Coastal or one of these non-Power 5 schools. Um, it, it is, it's it's going to be an interesting um, time to be a college football fan and the last thing we need to do, guys, trust me here, the last thing we need to do is allow the, the incompetence of former leadership to lead us into the future. I mean, the, the incompetent leadership of the NCAA is what got us here. Incompetent leadership of the NCAA got us here. Let's certainly not trust the incompetent leadership of the NCAA to get us to a better place. 843-661-0937. Let's... Um, Let's talk a little Iowa caucus. We'll wake up next Tuesday morning having known who the winner of the Iowa caucus is. I read some things yesterday, talked to a couple of people who have strong opinions about what Trump did this time that he didn't do in 2016. Back in a few. Did a good bit of reading yesterday. I actually talked to a couple of um, folks inside uh, politics, and we were talking about the Iowa caucus and what to expect and um Trump won the primary. Excuse me. Trump won the um. Uh, yeah, the GOP primary in 2016, but Ted Cruz won um the caucus. Trump spent a lot of time in Iowa in 2015 and 16, in 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 kind of concert fashion. He'd go to these big arenas and big venues and have huge turnouts, and it was more of a spectacle than it was. And I don't think Trump understood Rev the the nature of a, of a caucus. I mean, it's not a rock show. It's not a. It's not a um a rock and roll concert. It, it's um, it's it's an unusual animal. It's um, it's it's. Let's use a football analogy. It's blocking and tackling, uh, to the nth degree in politics. And from what I've read and what I've gathered, and people confirmed um, this suspicion I have from what I've read, um, that Trump has not spent a lot of time in Iowa. I mean, he spent some time there, but he's not been boots on the ground like Ron DeSantis. I mean, there's kind of a, um, there's, I think it's Chuck Grassley, if I'm not mistaken, um, came up with the, you know, the, the, the Grassley way to win Iowa was to go to all 99 counties and shake hands and kiss babies. And I don't disagree with a lot of that, but what Trump did do that he didn't do in 16 and didn't have to do in 20 because he was the, uh, the incumbent president, he invested enormous amounts of infrastructure. I mean, they put, just human beings on the ground in Iowa. They infiltrated some of these Republican monthly meetings. I mean, they door knocked. They they passed out leaflets. They they canvassed neighborhoods. I mean, they did 
kind of old school politics. Um, now, I think Trump has two or three appearances this week in Iowa, but it's to really solidify. And from what I'm hearing, I mean, this sounds odd. Trump wants to express a debt of gratitude to the people he deployed to Iowa to do the work necessary to win Iowa. And depending on what poll you believe or read or trust, he's, I mean, there's never been a Republican running for president with as big a lead as Trump has in Iowa. Now, how accurate are polls in caucuses? That's the interesting part of this. I mean, Trump has somewhere in the neighborhood of a 40 to 45 point advantage. I mean, that's unheard of. Now, now does that reflect in the, in the caucus? I don't know. Here's what it'll tell me. It'll tell me that if Trump performs, as the polls say in Iowa, they've built a ground game better than they've ever had. I told Rev, we were at the beach, and off the record, um, Drew McKissick was with us, and we hadn't gone back on the air yet. And, I mean, Drew will say these things over the air, but I don't, you know, I don't push him hard on who, where, when, how, and why. But I told Drew off the air as we were waiting on the break to finish, I said, Drew, it looks to me like that Trump has more competent people less self-serving people around him in this election than he did in either 16 or 20. And I think Revel attest Drew said, yeah, but there's no doubt. I mean, they put together a formidable team of experts mm-hmm. saying, you know, what, what Trump is guilty of, and it's easy to be guilty of this, Josh, Trump believes that I'm so unique and different, none of the rules apply. Well, then you know what rule does apply? It's going to be a caucus. I mean, it's going to be a caucus. It's going to be a funky Animal. I mean, it's it's not like primaries. It's not like television and radio ads and turnouts. I mean, caucuses are very funky. It's dependent upon weather and whatnot. So you are you're rolling the dice if you believe you can go in and just um put on a rock show or a big WWF wrestling match and out of that leave the energy behind and everybody enthusiastically shows up on caucus night at a school lunchroom in support of Donald Trump. I think that's the mistake he made in 16. I mean, there was an enormous energy. We all know that in the Trump 16 election, just not a lot of nuts and bolts. And it seems to me they put some nuts and bolts in place in Iowa, uh, maybe not as much in New Hampshire, but I think he really wants to win Iowa to solidify his standing as the, I mean, the heir apparent. I mean, there's no, why are we having a primary? I mean, I didn't win in 16 in Iowa, and I still ran away with the primary. Why are we even? I mean, if I if if Trump wins Iowa, that's going to be the lean. That's going to be the ass. The Trump world will begin suggesting strongly to the GOP, let's circle the wagons. I mean, I get everybody doesn't like me, but I mean, it, it, I'm going to be the eventual winner. In every state we have a primary, and every you know contested race we have, we beat the crap out of one another. We lessen the likelihood that we have success in November. I mean, nobody's had this big a lead for this long a period of time. And I think he proves that if he overperforms or performs as the as the polls say in Iowa. So I don't have any idea who he's listening to. I mean, I don't have any idea, but somebody's in his ear that was not in his ear in either 16 or 20. Somebody's in Trump's ear. Now, there could be some weirdness about the the um the pending legal troubles he has. Maybe that has him consumed. I mean, maybe he said, look, I'm not going to have time. Trump's not a moron. I mean, stop with that nonsense. I mean, I get that he's different. He's unique. He's not like everybody else who's run for the presidency, but he's not dumb. I mean, that, 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 he may be a little bit crazy, crazy in a good way for some, crazy in a bad way for others, but Donald Trump's not a dumb man. 
I mean, he's not politically illiterate. He's not business illiterate. And I think Trump's smart enough to sit in a room and say, you know, the Iowa caucus, a lot of nuts and bolts. I'm a lot of, I learned a lesson in 16 that you can't just show up and, and give a speech at a football stadium, fly back home, and hope the people show up that night to do the work necessary to be successful in a caucus. Let's deploy however many people we need. I would imagine one of his top consultants or advisors said, Donald, here's what we need to do. I mean, you've got business to take care of. You've got pending indictments and legal trouble and trials and Supreme Court hearings. Um, let us put a team together and go to Iowa. I mean, you're, you're still who you are. I mean, they know what they're doing, but, but I, I just think you failed to understand how important the caucus is. And I think Trump has taken that advice. And I think somebody's probably convinced him and probably in communication with the, 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 you know, the leadership of the GOP and convincing them, Hey, we're up 40 in Iowa. If we win the caucus by 40, I mean, let's call this thing off. I mean, I understand you've got to go to New Hampshire. Um, Sanu News endorsed Nikki. That seems to be a tighter race. Um, it's kind of interesting, Rev. DeSantis has invested heavily in Iowa. Nikki has put all of her eggs in the New Hampshire basket. Um, I mean, I think Trump wins both. I think he wins Iowa going away. I think he wins New Hampshire by a smaller margin. But then DeSantis and Nikki have to decide what happens in South Carolina. We're hearing, I mean, you saw some reporting, that DeSantis has decided if he doesn't perform as as needed in Iowa, he's going to suspend his campaign. That's a, that's a real technical way of saying dropping out. He's going to suspend his campaign and endorse Donald Trump. I think there's a better chance that he suspends, he suspends his campaign than there is he suspends his campaign and endorses Donald Trump. I mean, I think some of that's got to play. Are there, are there negotiations between the two campaigns? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But there's some reporting out there that once Iowa wraps up, and this will be next Tuesday morning, I mean, the, the Iowa caucus is the 15th, which is Monday. So Tuesday morning, we sit behind this microphone. We have a winner of the Iowa caucus, and we have a pretty good chance of having who we thought was going to be the most legitimate threat to Donald Trump winning the primary already out of the race. What does that say about DeSantis? I mean, where does DeSantis, when DeSantis got in the race, Trump was at about 40, 41. DeSantis was at about 32, 33, 34 in some polling. And we thought we had a horse race. I mean, we really thought we had, you know, hey, the Trump world was angry at DeSantis because he kind of, um, he should have waited. I mean, a lot of tr- Trump supporters said, why did he do this? He should have waited. Um, where does DeSantis go from here? Because he's not really declared his path. Nikki's declared hers. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Nikki has been um, offered as the alternative to America first. Let's get back to the good old days of, you know, trillion-dollar defense budgets and intervention and globalist reigning supreme. I mean, she's not, I mean, she's not disguised herself. She did for a, for a long time, but she didn't raise any money and needed money to be competitive in some of these early states, the military-industrial complex said, we don't really have a candidate in this race. I mean, Chris Christie to some degree, Asa Hutchinson to some degree, some of the establishment candidate, but nobody got any traction, and they thought that she may have the best chance to get some traction, and she's got a little bit of New Hampshire, but I've not seen a poll where Nikki has gained any traction anywhere else. So Nikki has declared her fate and future. I mean, I, I am a throwback. I am I am the alternative to Trump that reminds most Republican voters of the good old days when people cared what the National Review of the Wall Street Journal 
um, she say seemed it. to have gained traction within the media. I mean, they they well, are I mean, promoting that, that's her the, as that, that's the machine. Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly. part of the machine, you know. And um, speaking of the media, I got a story on the other side that um, I mean, to me, it blows me away. It doesn't surprise me, but to see it in writing, it's just so confounding and interesting. To answer your question about Ron DeSantis, what happened? I mean, if he gets blamed for you know, being a bad candidate or whatever, but part of what happened is Trump got indicted, and I think DeSantis was banking on the point on, on the. On this point, that people, that America First voters were ready to move on from Trump. And I don't think necessarily that's the case. And then Trump gets indicted. And I think that makes some of the America First people, you know, that may have been like, yeah, I like what he stands for, but it's time to move on. They moved right Uh, back over. Hold on to that. You you, you got my brain going a million miles an hour at 636 on our Tuesday morning. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a few. 843-661-0937. Every now and then, Rev says something (laughs) Uh that I've not thought of. Oh, really? Every now and then, every now and then, Josh, Rev says something that I've not considered or thought of. And and all the edges I have, but not this exact point. Okay. So DeSantis gets in. And it looks like it's going to be a competitive race because there are many, many America firsters who say, I'm just tired of the drama, man. I mean, I, I do believe he's been mistreated. I do believe they've, they've looked at him fundamentally different than any other politician in my lifetime. I give up. I, I give. I mean, I want to move on. DeSantis looks like a reasonable alternative. And along comes indictments. And along comes legal toil and turmoil and troubles and, and whatnot. And DeSantis pays a price for Trump's legal misgivings. I mean, it's no doubt about it. When you look at the indictments, it's not just Trump and, and Biden. It's Trump and DeSantis in the, in the Republican primary. So how, what percentage of reluctant Trump voters did the cathedral <laughs> talk back into being Trump voters? I mean, you don't know the percentage. I don't know the percentage. I've never looked at it that way. I mean, I've always looked at Biden-Trump. And when these legal issues rear its head, because I've always thought if Trump gets in, he wins. Remember, there was a period of time we didn't know if he's getting in or not. When he gets in, I always thought he wins. But I do remember, Rev, to your point, the first poll that came out had Trump at about 41, DeSantis at about 43, and I may have said on the air, that may be Trump's ceiling. I mean, that may I be that, that may yeah. be his ceiling. His ceiling may be 40, 41, 42, and if DeSantis can figure out a way to get, you know, there, I mean, you've got a horse race. You've got a two-man uh, race, and who knows who the winner is through a very complicated primary process. But once the left began attacking Trump, and here's the oddity of this. Here's what, I mean, Bree says they know what they're doing. I, you know, to some degree, I'll accept that. But I don't know that they understand this or not. I mean, well, I mean, they understand it. Could they be making a miscalculation? I mean, there's a difference in not knowing and making a miscalculation. I mean, I've done a lot of things that, that I miscalculated on. I don't know how many things I've done that I just I was unaware, just not familiar. Well, I did never never thought of that. No, I think you think of all these things when you're playing chess, and at that level, you're always playing chess, but you do make miscalculations. But I mean, there's no doubt about it. You make sometimes big miscalculations. So in the, in the spirit of he's not electable, you, you kind of, I mean, we've always felt the reason. I mean, we've always considered one of the reasons, Josh, they went after Trump was they knew it would rally the primary. I mean, it would really, I mean, it would intensify his support, right? 
I mean, if Trump's at 40, 41, um, how do we get him? Because we don't want to run, we don't want to run against DeSantis. I mean, DeSantis beats us in Pennsylvania. DeSantis beats us in Wisconsin. He beats us in Arizona, Nevada. I'm not sure about um, Michigan, but he beats us in a lot of places that we think we can beat Trump. So how do we increase the likelihood that Trump wins a Republican primary? We intensify his base, right? I mean, we take the people that are America firsters but are kind of sort of ready to move past Trump because of all the drama and the, I don't know, just the stuff that goes along with being a Trump supporter, Trump being in the race. You do that because you want Trump to win the primary, but you think you've got a better chance of beating him if he is indeed um, the nominee. I think that's a miscalculation. I think it's far more likely that you beat DeSantis in a general than beating Trump because I don't know that there's a, a, a poll out there that shows what I tell Drew McKissick over and over and over again and what I tell Republican operatives over and over and over again and what I know with every fiber of my being that I'm right. The Trump voter's not a Republican voter yet. So if Trump's not on the ballot, how many good old boys stay home? Now, but they're not going to vote for conservatism. Now, but they've never read the National Review in their life. They could care less what the Wall Street Journal says about the economy or taxes or, you know, the price of home and, and uh, car insurance. I mean, I saw an article yesterday. No, I mean, they, they don't care about that. I mean, if their guy's not on the ballot, they're not going to show up at the poll in, in November. And some of the Republican leadership believes that they've kind of um, convinced these people. It's a duopoly. It's a Republican or a Democrat. And just because it's not Trump doesn't mean you can't come vote for the Republican. Well, you can. But I think there's less of a chance that you will. And that, that's what I've always felt was the, um, so, you know, you wonder in Democrat circles, did they have that debate? I mean, in the James Carvels of the world, when Carvel's talking to Axelrod, I mean, I think of those two, they're very, very good at what they do. So when Carvel and Axelrod are together at a Starbucks in uh, Georgetown, do they, do they offer up that as, a, as an alternative proposal? In other words, hey, man, you know, does Axelrod look at Carvel and say, we want Trump in the general because we think we can beat him in the swing states. We don't believe we can beat DeSantis in the swing states. And the way to make sure we get Trump is to convince some of these, um, you know, the district attorneys to indict him on some of these frivolous charges, and that intensifies his base. Nobody beats Trump in a primary if he's under legal threat from the machine, from the man, from the cathedral. And I, I believe Carville probably said, David, be careful what you ask for. I mean, there's, there's more of what, what did Carville say on MSNBC that night? I mean, this is not an antiseptic moment. I mean, what's happening in eastern Pennsylvania is going to happen in western Ohio. It's going to happen in rural Michigan. I mean, if they're overvoting by 30% in eastern Pennsylvania or western Pennsylvania, they're damn sure going to do the same thing in western or in eastern Ohio and in Michigan, and that's what happened. Um, so, so, you know, you wonder if any of that sort of debate ever, ever took place. If Trump wins Iowa going away, does that momentum lead into New Hampshire? And if Trump clips Nikki pretty good in New Hampshire, does, does she shut down? But I mean, is there a chance, and we're getting inside baseball here, I'd love to have Kahaley on the phone right now, is there a chance that if Trump meets expectations in Iowa, Nikki fails to meet expectation in New Hampshire because Trump Carry some momentum into New Hampshire, having won the Iowa caucus and eclipsed Nikki. Let's say Trump overperforms a bit in the poll. Nikki underperforms a bit in the poll. DeSantis gets out of the interim. Um, I think there's eight days between the Iowa caucus 
and the New Hampshire primary in those eight days, DeSantis gets out, endorses Trump, and it's simple for Ron DeSantis, live to fight another day. I mean, you, you see the writing on the wall. What advantage does he have in, in endorsing anybody? I mean, if he decides to do and I'm not saying the endorsement matters, but the Trump orbit will find that instead of a friend. I mean, DeSantis will have an opportunity to be friend or foe. I mean, he's been foe up until now. But I think you would agree, Rev. He's been a respectful foe. I mean, he's run his campaign the way he has yeah. to run his campaign. We found out he's not quite as good on the trail as many thought he would be. I mean, he, he's been a, I mean, to me, he's been a reasonable alternative to Trump. But, but once again, if DeSantis decides to get in uh, involved in some way, shape, or form, his only decision is to endorse Trump. Unless he's going to work at, at you know, Goldman Sachs as a corporate attorney. I mean, I have no idea what, what he wants to do with the rest of his life. I would imagine he wants to make a bunch of money. And he's got name ID and some degree of political notoriety, so he can go off and make a lot of money. Um, that would be the disadvantage of endorsing Trump. I mean, you come with that taint, that stain. If you go to Wall Street or or you go to Washington to work as a as a corporate lobbyist or government lobbyist, it's unlikely that um you put I dropped out of the presidential primary and endorsed Donald Trump. I mean, that's not that's not held in high regard in some of those affluent circles. Take a break. Back in a few. And a little 10th Avenue freeze out there in the background, go. right? Hmm. little Springsteen. You didn't know that, did you, Josh? I did not. I didn't think yeah. you did. Josh, what do you make, you of, do, my, what do you make of my analysis? But you would agree, Rev, that's one of the better beats. I mean, if Springsteen's a lyric guy, that's one of the better beats. 10th Avenue freeze out has kind of an interesting beat and cadence about it. That, that song makes a good bumper song. It is. I'll say that. <laughs> it's one of his, um, you ready? It's one of his cuter songs. Yeah. Yeah, that I doubt he's on. Um, yeah. It does make pretty good bumper music, come to think of it. So what do you make of that analysis? Carvel and Axelrod have played this out in their masterminds. They met at a Starbucks in Baton Rouge once, and then they met in Georgetown the second time because Obama wanted to be there. Um, and I want to go back to what I said yesterday, and I stand by this. We don't need to be concerned whether Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told Biden he was going to be um, – out of out of pocket we need to know whether he told president obama because <laughs> that's the person running running somehow the i bet he knew so the strategy employed by the democrats i'm saying josh is that they wanted to run against trump in the general they know he brings a lot of baggage they know their guy is not a generational candidate like obama was correct i mean obama was going to be hard to beat by anybody i mean he was a generational candidate really good Really articulate, really eloquent. Um, I mean, just the the total package, so to speak. Um, they knew Biden was not that. So part of winning a presidential election when you know you've got an inferior candidate is to make sure the other candidate is equal in inferiority as you are. Trump is not in the same shape Biden's in, but he brings a lot of baggage. Right. So, so let's figure out a way to make sure Trump's the nominee. We've got a weak candidate. We need to run against a weak candidate. And the weakest candidate we see over there is not Nikki Haley. I mean, she has mass appeal. She's a female. She's of Indian descent. She'll be well-funded. This DeSantis guy made a name for himself in, um, in Florida. He's technocratic. He understands policy. Plus, plus, he's a little bit America first. So he may be the most dangerous guy. He may be the one we don't want to run against. So how do we make sure we get Trump in the general? Well, I mean, to make sure we get the Trump in the general is to re-energize his base. The, 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 the Kennards of the world, 
I never talk about myself at the first. Uh, excuse me, Bo Jackson. The um, <laughs> the, the, the you know the um, the the Trump supporter who felt it was time to go an alternate route. Let's you know let's let's consider DeSantis. Let's think about not Christie. Let's think about Nikki Haley. This is prior to Nikki declaring her path. Uh, you know, Nikki played it kind of both ways for a long time. She was DeSantis light. Um, if I'm talking in a bowling alley, I'm talking about America first. If I'm talking in a boardroom, I'm talking about neoconservatism. I want to have it both ways. I don't think DeSantis ever got accused of that. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, is there is there an argument out there to be made that DeSantis tried to be too many things to too many people? Other than when the establishment folks appeared to be supporting him, like the Bushies, they called him. You know, he, he seemed to but align up. But he denied up. that. I know. And, and, but that was the, She's never denied it. That's, I mean, Nikki's never denied true. it. It's, un, I mean, it's, it's, it's undeniable. But, but that was the only time he was associated with, you know, that side of the past. But that was the majority of the Trump crowd trying to label him uh, a little Marco, yeah. you know, or whatever, uh, Lion Ted. I mean, that was Trump doing his thing. That was Trump trying to convince the Republican primary voter that this guy can't be trusted. I mean, he's not one of you. He's one of them. And, and you know, I don't think there's ever been any evidence that DeSantis is one of them. Um, and to some degree, guys, Trump is one of them. He's a rich guy. He lives in a, in, a, in, a, in a tower in New York City. I mean, he's made a lot of money. He's got a private jet. I understand what he runs on and, the, you know, his foundational principles of, of the campaign. But I still go back and I'm going to get Josh's opinion. Did they make a miscalculation? In in the in the name of finding the most unelectable Republican, by making him the most electable Republican in a primary, and we know what happened when Trump got indicted, it intensified. I'll just ask this question, Josh: Do you believe what I believe, or not, that the optic of Marlago, the optic of men with guns, the optic of what he mishandled classified information? Really? I mean, they asked Trump for some classified material back. He wouldn't give it, so they sent men with guns to his private home to make sure he'd give it back or not. I mean, I understand the the counter argument would be, well, what do you do when the guy won't give it back? I mean, how many friendly letters do you send? <laughs> you know, what do we do? Scale the wall in the middle of the night and not let anybody know we're in there. I, I just think they made a, a, a miscalculation, and I think the Seinfeld watcher in Pennsylvania gives Trump more of the benefit of the doubt than they ever imagined he would because they saw a private residence of a former president being raided and invaded by men with guns. Hard to change that optic, isn't it, Josh? Yeah, I I think so. And going off of what you said, I'm not sure I completely agree with your assessment. I could be wrong because to me— You probably are, but continue. It it looks (laughs) like to me that— their goal is not to get him on the ballot because he has the most baggage. I think I think that they think— Does he have the most baggage? Yes. Okay. But I don't think that the Trump—you know, as you've said, the Trump voters don't care, and th- I think they know that. And they're afraid that—they're more afraid that he'll win again than, uh, than losing to, you know, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. So— Basically, what I think is they tried to throw everything at him to see what sticks, and in doing so, they shot themselves in the foot. But to your point, that you know, I that could be they are trying to make him look bad to independents by doing that. I think you can make 
mishandling classified information stick. I think you can make obstructing justice stick. I think Trump mishandled classified material. I think Trump obstructed justice. But men with guns become a bigger deal. The optic of the blue lights flashing on CNN. I mean, that, I just think the independent, that's where I think Carvel and, and Axelrod are wrong. I think they're misreading. I think their personal animus with Trump blinds them to the fact that the average American who's not tuned into Fox, and we talk about them a lot, and we're going to talk about them a lot more. They're the only people in the room that matter, right? I mean, this isn't the Iowa caucus in November. This is not the New Hampshire primary. This is not an African-American church in South Carolina in November. This is 150,000 people in about five states. And I think when you try to tell those 150,000 people he mishandled classified information and he obstructed justice, the majority of those people would go, he probably did, but you guys sent men with guns. I, I just think that's the miscalculation. And I think obviously that intensifies the Trump support, but I think the 125 or 50,000 people that are going to decide who the next president is, I think they forget or it doesn't matter as much that he mishandled classified material or obstructed justice as it does. Yeah, but man, you guys showed up at his home with guns and flashing lights. I mean, that, that's where I think Carville and Axelrod got it wrong. I think they have made him more electable. Not because he didn't obstruct justice or he didn't mishandle classified information. I think he did. I think he absolutely did. I think Dave Baker reluctantly believes <laughs> that he did. So, But, but, but I think that storyline gets lost. It becomes secondary to the visual, to the Seinfeld watcher. Do you believe the Seinfeld watcher is going to read four stories to really understand exactly what happened? No. I mean, they're not going to read headlines. four stories. No, exactly. Headlines and sound bites. And I just believe when Axelrod and Carville say, we got him on obstructing justice and we've got him on on um, on mishandling classified information, and he's more he's less electable because of that. No, he's more electable. Because you showed up at his house with guns, machine guns. And I just think the the 150,000 people that will vote for Trump or Biden are more likely to be sympathetic to Trump and America first because of what they saw. They're not going to read, uh, you know, a, um, a, a six-page essay in the, in the National Review. They're not going to read, um, you know, the Wall Street Journal's three-part documentary on exactly what happened or not. They're just not going there. And by the way, they'll say, and I think I heard that they raided Melania's underwear drawer, yeah, too. And that's going to have tremendous impact. That's the miscalculation I think they made, and that's part of the indictments. That's why I think the legal system going after Trump has made him more electable, not just in a Republican primary, but in a general election. Let's go to the phone. Bobby in Hartsville. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Am I the first caller? You are. You know, everybody must be uh, either stayed up too late watching the game or just scrapped the day because of the weather and, and slept in. I don't know. There, were, there um, was less There was less traffic this morning before 6 when I came in than there normally is at that time of the morning. Notice well, Bob, that. Bobby, you know this. You're a Dodger. We're braves, but we're all candy asses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me ask you this question. I think I kind of asked something along this lines. I want to see if you still stick where you were before. Okay, so in your mind, there's no way – Nikki Haley is the vice president candidate. Zero. Zero chance. Zero chance. Okay. Who is going to be? So I'm, I need to write this down today that Ken said 
in case Nikki does. Ken said Nikki will not be. Now you tell me your best guess. Who do you think? I know you're not. You don't have a magic ball, but who do you think is uh, the best bet for not only to be the vice president candidate now, but to carry on uh, after Trump? Who? See, I think that's two different people. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate it. Appreciate the call. I think it's two different people. As much as I'd love for the VP candidate to run with Trump in 2024 is the heir apparent to the America First movement. I, I don't think, I, well, I mean, there, there may be somebody out there, that, and the, you know, and then the machine can get a hold of someone to turn them into something that they're not. We've seen that multiple times, many, many times in our lives. Um, I mean, I think J.D. Vance is a central figure to America First's future. I don't think J.D. Vance is going to be on the on the short list of v, or likely VP picks. I think Ron DeSantis will be one. I think Christy Noem will be one. I think Stefanik from New York is going to be seriously considered. I think Lake from Arizona is going to be seriously um, considered. They'll do some vetting and evaluating. I think J.D. Vance will be considered. Um, Where does Ramaswamy fit? Well, I mean, I think Ramaswamy will be considered. I don't think Ramaswamy, uh, you don't need two bomb throwers. I mean, I think you've got to bring a a degree of, I don't want to say civility, uh, because I don't know that that's the right word I'm looking for. I don't want to say decorum. I don't think that's the word I'm looking for. I think there's got to be some, I mean, I think Ramaswamy has helped Trump more than Ramaswamy even knows. And, and I and I kind of stumbled on this a couple of weeks back when I started thinking about some of the favorables and unfavorables of Trump, some of the crazy things he says and, and gets away with. But, but Ramaswamy has been more aggressive than Trump. And I think that softens Trump up. I think Trump is considered the most extreme politician of my lifetime because of what he says. It's unfiltered. It's unvetted. It's not consulted, tested, uh, the, you know, regardless of what the polls say. He, he, why did you say that? I mean, how many times have we, why did you say that? I mean, every Trump voter listening to my voice at one time or other said, why do you have to say that? I mean, that makes it harder, man. Stop with that. And I think Ramaswamy says, he said that, but let me tell you what I believe. But he goes to an even extreme measure, and it makes Trump sound a little more uh, cerebral. It makes him. I think Ramaswamy has a gift. Trump doesn't have that gift. I mean, Ramaswamy is unbelievably well-spoken, uncommonly well-spoken. Um, Ramaswamy is the guy that cusses you out whenever using a profane word. I mean, he does that to the media, but but I think he softened up Trump. But but Bobby, I think DeSantis is on the list. Uh, you know, Robert Cahaley, my buddy, thinks Marsha Blackburn has to be on that list. I don't know. Um, do you pick someone? I, we hear this a lot. Well, you need to pick someone from a swing state. I, I don't know that that matters as much as some lead or try to lead you uh, to believe. But I think Stefanik is going to be considered. I think Christy Noem obviously will be um, considered. I don't think Trump has ever thought much of Nikki to begin with. Guys, Trump didn't pick Nikki to be ambassador to the UN because he thought she was duly qualified and best suited for that job. Trump owed Henry. I mean, Nikki Haley was the governor of South Carolina. Henry McMaster was the lieutenant governor of South Carolina. Henry McMaster was the first statewide official in America to endorse Donald Trump's candidacy in 2016. Trump calls Henry and says, is there a job in Washington you want? I'm too old. Me and Peggy ain't going to Washington. We, we'll hang around this, uh, this colonial capital. We, we ain't going to Washington. 
we ain't lost a damn thing in Washington. We don't have any business in, in Washington. Uh, I'll say, I'll say, oh, boy. Um, but but I, I just think that putting Nikki at the UN was far less about Nikki and about doing a favor for, you know, Henry McMaster, who delivered in South Carolina. And Henry didn't – I mean, Henry will be a 10-year governor. I mean, he'll have a longer run as governor of South Carolina than anybody ever has. The first two years, he owes Donald Trump. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Josh, you said something that I find interesting. I'll agree with your assessment here. I disagree with your assessment there. The majority of my assessments are made from the events and experiences. I don't read books about politics. I mean, I've read a lot of books in my life, but it's not about strategy. I mean, Axelrod has an opinion. Carville has an opinion. Rove has an opinion. These guys have made enormous amounts of money unbelievable, unfathomable amounts of money consulting on behalf of campaigns. The best candidate, the best campaign are those that respond to the people. You don't need consultants and strategists when you listen to people. And I'm talking about people at the grocery store, people at the racetrack, people at the ball game, people on talk radio, people on CNN for that matter. And it goes back to my political life. I've never been the best candidate. By that, I mean I've never been the most resume candidate, the most qualified candidate, but I do believe I've always been the candidate that brings those experiences and, and willingness to listen and open-mindedness. People will tell you what they believe. So when I suspect, I don't have any analysis whatsoever to substantiate my claim that I believe guns at Mar-a-Lago matter much more to voters than whether or not Trump obstructed justice, whether or not Trump mishandled classified information. See, Rove's got to figure out a way to make it a million-dollar job. I mean, it's only a $10,000 job to say, hey, man, people are going to care more about those guns and men with guns than they will, but you can't get paid a million dollars. You can't sign a year-long contract. And that's what Robert Cahaley talks about, conservative Inc. and the consulting class. I mean, everybody's got to get paid enormous amounts of money to tell you things we already know. I mean, politics is about people listening to people, listening to voters, paying attention to what they're saying about the economy, what they're saying in church, what they're saying in Sunday school. I mean, I never, ever paid attention to consultants more than I did Miss Smith or Mr. Jones or whomever calls in at 805 this morning. That's how you understand American politics. The best politicians that I know in my life listen to consultants and strategists far less than they listen to people at the grocery store, at the ball game. The the business conservative Inc. and liberal Inc. for that matter have been built upon the premise that these are real complicated matters. Well, you know how complicated it is, Josh? Do we believe 150,000 people are impacted more by Trump mishandling classified information or the visual of men with guns standing outside his private residence. I mean, I'm a moron, but it's easy for me to believe that those people watching Seinfeld in Michigan deciding in November who the next president is going to be, they're going to say, that's yeah, they they sent those people down with those guns, man, about something. Well, they just had a classified information. James Carville said that. David Axelrod said that. I don't care, man. I mean, they sent people down to his house with guns. It's a very simple art and craft if you allow it to be. But you can't allow it to be because if you let it be as simple as it really is, you know what? People don't get paid hundreds of millions of dollars and lobbyists and consultants and lawyers 
on K Street in Washington have to find real jobs and live real lives instead of flying back and forth from the Hamptons. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. You're on. Kid, um, one thing we got to be clear about, this is the Democrat Party, the Cathedral, not the Justice Department, um, that's going after Trump with these indictments. And so that being said, the Democrat Party, the Cathedral, could go ahead and drop the charges tomorrow. If any one of these prosecutors or anybody in the Justice Department got the right call, say, hey, go ahead and drop these charges against Trump. Come up with this reason why, that we, you know, or whatever the reason may be. So my question would be, what do you think would happen if the Democrat, the Cathedral, dropped the charges against Trump? And another question that I have for you, what do you see happening on January 8th or whatever day it was of next of the year if Trump wins? What do you see the Democrat Party doing if Trump wins? What do you see happening in the nation if Trump wins the election? I mean, what, what do you see America looking like one year, six months, two years, or three years into a Trump presidency? And what do you think the Democrats will be doing to destroy it? Thank, thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I mean, I, you know, I'll say I don't know when I don't know. And I don't know. I mean, I think about that a lot. And I can't come up with any clarity. What does America look like? How do we react in January once Trump is inaugurated? I'm playing on hypotheticals here. Let's say that, you know, the polls hold. He wins the primary. Biden ends up being the nominee. He's a weak guy. Trump's got a lot of baggage. Trump ekes it out. I mean, he wins uh, Georgia. He wins Nevada. He wins Wisconsin, that's probably more likely than Michigan or Pennsylvania, simply because I don't think the Wisconsin Democrat machine is as powerful as it is in Wisconsin, or excuse me, in Michigan or Pennsylvania. What you've got to understand, guys, is the Democrats today, and I'm not talking about every, let me say this, the liberals, the radical liberal movement within the Democrat Party are not about the rule of law. It's the rule of power. There are no laws. Laws don't matter. I mean, what, 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 is, what is the interpretation of the 14th Amendment? What, what gives us the most power? What is the interpretation of the Second Amendment? What gives us the most power? It's not the rule of law with radicals in the Democrat Party. It's the rule of power. So there are no rules. What, what, is, what is required of us to attain and amass more power? I believe this, and this is where I would get out of step with some of the, um, the experts. The experts believe that the indictments of Trump, the potential convictions of Trump, make him a weaker candidate. I don't buy that. I mean, I'm convinced that if Trump is, in, is convicted, it doesn't matter. It's almost like he becomes this martyr. I mean, it's the weirdest thing imaginable. And, and what has happened, guys, you're asking the people who have had historically the moral authority to run the country to admit that they've lost that moral authority. But that, that, that's the weirdness of this debate. You're asking people in power to admit they suck at being in power. So it's not the rule of law. It's not a come to Jesus. It's not, you know, the confession of the Catholic Church. I mean, there's going to be none of that. They have sold their soul to the rule of power. And they've made what, in my determination, Reb, is a miscalculation. And the miscalculation is, let's go after Trump every chance we get. That makes him more unelectable in a general they're assuming, and this is where it's, it's a little bit dangerous, they're assuming that America holds them as high regard as they hold themselves. 
but you're asking them to, you're asking the most powerful people on this planet to look in the mirror and say, I'm not as good at this as I thought I was. They're not going to do that. I mean, that requires humility. These folks don't know humility. It's a zero-sum game to them. How do I stay in charge? How do I stay in power? How do I stay in control? I don't care what the law says. I mean, they've already proven it. I don't care what the Constitution says. I don't care what the Supreme Court says. I mean, we've got all these reaches on trials. And, and I want to talk. I've, I've warned you for three days I'm going to do this, and I haven't done it yet. But I want to walk you through some of the charges in D.C., that, that I think the court could rule in favor of a defendant from January 6th and, and kind of give Trump a break without even meaning to give Trump a break. Some of these, these obstruction of official proceeding charges that are so adamantly um, out there uh, as part of this uh, going after Donald Trump. But, but to breeze this question about what the world looks like, what America looks like the day after Trump is elected, the day after Trump is officially Inaugurate. I don't know. I don't have any idea. Now, I believe this. I believe Trump is going to scorch the earth. I mean, I think there, there, there's, there's payments that need to be made, repayments. You're talking about loan repayments? <laughs> I mean, I think there has been a lot of attempts to cut his legs out from under him, and, and his, his, his loyal supporters would expect him to return the favor. I mean, do we believe Trump's vindictive? I mean, I do. I think Trump settles scores. I think when you get him, he feels like he's got to get you. So when Trump says, you know, I want to be dictator for a day, I mean, I think that's casual. And I don't think he means I want to be a dictator, but I think he does mean, yeah, I got some scores to settle. No question about it. That would be an interesting poll question, Josh, of the Trump supporters who hopes he does prioritize settling some scores. I mean, if the DOJ has been weaponized against Trump, if the FBI has been weaponized against Trump, what should Trump do? To the DOJ, what should he do about the FBI? I mean, do you really believe that he should show up in Washington the day after he's sworn and say, "I know you guys were doing what you had to do"? I mean, I get it. I mean, it's not the rule of law anymore; it's the rule of power. You guys are in power. You do anything to stay in power. I forgive you. I mean, let's go get a, a fish sandwich at at McDonald's. I don't buy that for a second. I think if Trump gets elected, he is going to be vindictive, and he's going to try and settle scores. Is that good for the country? I don't know. I don't have any idea if that's good for the country or not. That's why I don't know what the other side of a Trump victory looks like. Never said I know what the other side of a Trump victory looks like. But I think it's better than 50-50 that we find out. I mean, I do. I think right now, as we sit, things can change. I mean, politics is a very uncertain science. But as we sit, if the, if the, if the presidential election were today, Donald Trump would get elected again. That's a scary proposition for a lot of Americans and an exciting proposition for the other half of Americans. But that's where we sit today. I'll tell you where else we sit today. We've got a weather warning. We've got um, schools closed. We've got universities not going um, to class essential employees or to report it at certain businesses and public sector organizations. Andrew Dockery is with WMBF News. He's a meteorologist. These guys are the heart, and I mean this sincerely because I was on social media yesterday, hardest working cats in weather <laughs> in our part of the country, and I appreciate all they've done for us engaging and, um, and making us aware of what's happening. So, Andrew, good morning, and, um, and what exactly has, has anything changed from when you were with us yesterday, and, and, and what can we expect or look for today? Yeah, I think uh, really the big story, obviously, is uh, confidence. I think the confidence of the forecast is, uh, is certainly higher than where we were yesterday. 
Um, I'll tell you what's not a good sign and uh, not to really hype anything up, but the fact that we don't have any showers around the area anymore, we just have a little bit of light drizzle. Um, that's going to allow some of that storm fuel that we talked about yesterday to build. Um, even if we don't have sunshine in here today, we have plenty of warm air uh, moving into the area already. I mean, when I'm looking at temperatures, uh, we're already in the mid-60s at the beaches. Uh, the PD's up in the 50s. You go north of I-95 at the 40s. So warm fronts moving through, and that's kind of building the storm fuel for later. Um, I still think our timing is, is about where we expect it. 12 to 8, and I would love to be able to shorten that down. Uh, but really, it's the tornado threat I think we're going to have to keep an eye on as we had um, anywhere from 1 to roughly 5 p.m. Um, and then, of course, once we get that threat out of here, we have the line of storms uh, that's going to be bringing in the wind. You may not notice it this morning, but the wind, anywhere from 20 to 25 mile per hour gusts, that'll get up to 40 to 50 mile per hour gust even outside of storms by midday um, of course that peaks this afternoon as well the widespread threat with 50 to 60 uh, mile per hour gust and maybe even higher than that within that line of storms this evening so andrew i'm at the gym yesterday and we're talking about the weather today they had a small child they were thinking about school and work and whatnot and i said well you know the storm fuel and they're like, no, I yep. don't know the storm fuel. And I said, I don't either, but I heard Andrew Dockery say it on, on the radio. What in the world is storm fuel? Oh, man, we could really bore you here if we wanted to. Uh, basically, it's what we call CAPE in the atmosphere. Um, it's an acronym for Convective Available Potential Energy. Put my nerd glasses on for you this morning. Uh, but in order for a storm to fire, you have to have some sort of mechanism to get you know, this thing to go. I mean, it's, think of it like a car. Let's break it down here. You could have a V8 engine on a car, right? But if you don't have any gas in that car, it's not going to go anywhere. Same thing with the atmosphere. Uh, you can have every sort of dynamic, very powerful setup, but if you don't have a little bit of a spark, either the lines that are going to move through the area will fall apart, or if you have just enough fuel you're going to be able to get to whatever that destination is, especially in the wintertime. Um, so typically in the winter, we look at a lot of high wind energy, a lot of low storm fuel. Where in the summer, if you remember, the winds aren't as bad, but it's, you know, the heat and humidity that fire off some of these storms. So kind of opposite, but, you know, a little bit of storm fuel in January, even February can mean some bad business for us as we had uh, into severe weather for sure in the winter. Last question. You make me believe this is a rain and wind event. It doesn't matter what concerns me most. Does the rain or wind concern Andrew Dockery most? Um, uh, the wind. Um, I don't think that we can overhype the wind enough. And I told our team today we meet before the morning show around 3 a.m. And I walked in there the day and I said, I want us to prepare our morning show that we are looking at a significant high-impact weather event in the Carolinas. And the reason I say that is wind of this magnitude, 50 to 60 mile per hour, um, widespread will more than likely cause some widespread damage. Um, so make sure you have the prep ready to go as this storm rolls through. Not to mention, I'm, I'm starting to get a little bit overly concerned with the tornado threat. Um, if we don't get the tornado threat here, I think that tornado threat's going to move to eastern North Carolina. Someone in the Carolinas today is going to get a big-time tornado. It just looks like that. I hope it's not us. 
uh, but certainly something we can't let our guard down uh, ahead of the wind that comes in for the afternoon and evening. Very well explained. Andrew, you're a rock star, man. We really appreciate yesterday and today. You've enlightened and engaged our listeners, and we feel like we've, um, because I'm a dangerous dude when it comes to reading the weather and trying to interpret what you guys mean. You've explained it well. Thank you very much. Well, I appreciate it. And like I said, anything you all need, let us know. Um, and I can't wait to get some much-needed sleep after uh, this long day today. But, Andrew, I, I, do, I, do, I do have this. I mean, let me add this. If, if, if someone out there is worried, concerned, I mean, obviously we all are, uh, properties yeah. at risk, lives potentially at risk, you, you update periodically. How can we keep up with this moving target from the WMBF meteorologist perspective? Is it an app? Is it a website? Is it a Facebook page, a Twitter account? What is best I'll for t- us to keep up with you guys? I'll tell you, at this point, we're everywhere. But uh, what's really cool about Twitter and Facebook is you can ask those personal questions. Hey, what about us at Florence? What about us at Myrtle Beach? Uh, you can ask that by even just tweeting us. If you're on Twitter, it's at Andrew WMBF. Or you could even go to my Facebook page, Meteorologist Andrew Dockery. Um, the First Alert Weather app just posted another video update, and we're going to do that basically every couple of hours this morning. So we're everywhere. Search WMBF. You'll find us, and we're happy to help out in any way possible. Thank you, my man. Stay safe, and we'll try to do the same. All right. Sounds good. Y'all have a good one. Take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of moments. So I got a question. What's up with the 70s and 80s bumper music? I mean, this is great. Josh, are you doing that? Yeah. Unintentionally a little bit. (laughs) Unintentionally. I mean, that's great bumper music, like three consecutive great bumpers. Um, yeah, yeah, the Bruce Springsteen song got well, you. It's from the seventies and eighties. That's right. I mean, that, that's when I was in my mm-hmm. heyday. Yeah, Is I thought many, uh, we many should change ago. it up. You mm-hmm. know, we haven't changed the bumper since I was, you know, first started. But, so. but thank you for being <laughs> considerate of us older folk, <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you for being considerate of us. Um, hey, you got you got eighties was good music. Yeah, well, some of the boomers I deny that the boomers are going to leave you some good music and thirty five trillion dollars in debt. <laughs> That's true. But you do have the music. <laughs> we live in some good music to make up for the $35 trillion in debt. Speaking of debt, a lot of people's um, largest line item in their family budget is health insurance. Shouldn't be the case if you hardly ever use it. Fair enough? I mean, if you're a, a consistent and constant user of health care, it would stand to reason. It should be expensive. But if you're never sick, never go to the hospital, you're getting gouged. And the Obamacare exchanges, period. You're getting gouged in the Obamacare exchanges. There are alternatives. If you're under the age of 65, you're reasonably healthy. That's a big cohort. Under the age of 65, reasonably healthy. You're paying too much in the Obamacare exchanges. You're paying too much for health care in general. Christian Levis has reasonable and affordable options and alternatives. I can't explain it as well as he can. That's why you need to call 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970, or go to the website realchoicehealthcare.com. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Good morning. Hey, good morning. That is good bumper music, um, Ellen Camp and uh, Seeger. I think he played some Kasha Google or something like that yesterday. If they would only play Duran Duran, they would be happy. In uh, Pamplica, right. hey, and Nikki, David, in Pamplico is Duran Duran. <laughs> yeah, Duran Duran. That's right. Uh, I, Nikki, Nikki Haley, uh, she endorsed Marco Rubio in 2016. So I'm sure um, uh, Donald Trump remembers that. 
I'll say a quick note. Uh, the Gamecocks are three and one all time against Michigan. So you probably remember the game at the Big House, the clowny hit uh, in that bowl game. Uh, now Iowa caucus by nature, I guess there is little or no mail-in votes, no early votes, no absentee, no drop boxes. Am I correct on that? I- it's a grind. I mean, it, it is a actual gathering of real people who try to convince others that their candidate's the best. Well, see, that's not practice, though, for the general election. And I, I, I kind of wish that we could change this primary season around. It would be kind of interesting to start Pennsylvania and go to Michigan and then Wisconsin and Georgia and Arizona and have it where you can have some – I don't know if you do this in primaries, but have it where you have absentees, the the mail-in votes, uh, that type of thing. I'm sure you could do it in primary. give you some practice. Uh, I think the the first state of those swing states is going to be Michigan comes after South Carolina. And it, it would be nice to see which candidate did well in those uh, in those states that were, I call it, the flip states in 2016 to 2020. But anyway, that's just a thought. But Iowa, I mean, good Lord, if we had a general election caucus where everybody had to show up that one day, that would make it um, maybe beneficial for Republicans. But the world don't work like that. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Now, the caucus is a, I mean, it's, a, it's an experiment in elections. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It requires a lot of effort. I mean, there's a great debate in America about the effort. Should we make voting easier or is it easy enough? I mean, I think it's too easy. I mean, I'm being honest with you. I I know that may be anti-democratic, but everybody who supports Trump is opposed to democracy, right? I mean, we want dictatorships and, you know, rulers with an iron fist. Oh, yeah. Josh is looking like, well, we kind of want dictators. Eh, A little little bit. A dictator (laughs) for maybe the first week. Josh explained that. I mean, in a couple of minutes, why do you... Why are you somewhat smitten with the idea of a dictator? Well, because you we're are kind of hammering. I mean, you've said that off and on the air. Yeah, but I'm hamming it up a little bit. I don't actually want a dictator with absolute power, but I do think that we would benefit from stricter voting laws. In essence, I am okay with less people voting because the the country where the people vote can only be as good as the people. And if the people are getting worse, which does happen. But, but I mean, who judges what's worse or better? Who has that authority? I mean, you're saying it's getting worse, and I agree with you. I mean, I think America's in decline. I've said that over and over and over again. So if we believe America's in decline, the government's by, by nature going to be insufficient. It's going to be inferior. That'd be a better word, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if America's in decline, that means it's people aren't as honest and of integrity and hardworking and diligent and persevering, all these qualities and attributes we admire and respect. So, so you and I agree America's in decline. So what makes us believe that, uh, you know, people who don't work as hard, aren't as virtuous, aren't as honest, aren't as ethical, are going to vote for better government leadership? I mean, by default, you're going to elect inferior leaders, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, but, but how do we get that train back on the track? I mean, what happens to once a nation begins its descent, you and I and Dave. I mean, I think Rev is a little more reluctant because he's a bit nostalgic and romantic at heart. I think it's the the dancing Dave days that he reflects on. <laughs> oh, the good old. But days. I mean, you and I are a little more <laughs> emphatic about our beliefs that America's in precipitous decline, pretty dramatic decline, as far as I'm concerned. So if you're depending on the people to elect better government, but we believe the people are, are a little inferior, 
in general. Or the people you're that, electing that, have a totally different agenda that is not about keeping traditional American values where they were. So, it's so about it, a different approach to America, so right? So is it an inescapable cycle? I mean, is there any way out? You see where I'm headed? I mean, how do, if a nation is in decline, how does it ascend again? I mean, that, that's, I mean, that, that would be more of an academic exercise. Yeah. I mean, you know, wish I did take a break back at a few. Is this morning Joe or what is in this, the world or is this wake up Carolina? This is getting a little bit much now. That's great bumper music. You know, it's two great bumper Springsteen music. bumpers in one day and, and a John Mellencamp, which would have been John Cougar back in, yeah. back in that day, and Bob Seger thumbs up. You know what I think? I think Josh has a good heart because I think Josh sends all those insulting uh, promos to the voice guy. And he says to himself, wow, man, I mean, they're pretty good guys. I mean, they're old fogies, but they're pretty good guys. <laughs> At least I could tip my hat to his generation with some of the music. You know what I think? I think he doesn't know that was a Bruce song. <laughs> Do you know Both that? Both a was... little bit right. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, we're the generation, once again, that leaves you the good music and $34 trillion in federal debt. Uh, but who's counting, right? Did you see this um, in the negotiation? Is some of the... Um, the raising the debt ceiling, keeping the government open. I mean, it's an ongoing. It's like, it's like a lap at Daytona. You know, they'll be back in a minute. They'll need more money. I mean, so somebody will be leading the next lab. I can't see the track because it's two and a half miles, but they'll be back here in a minute, and it'll be the same thing. They'll need more money. Um, the defense budget went to $883 billion. Um, of the non-discretionary, and I'm talking about money not on autopilot. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, servicing debt is on autopilot. we got to do that under the current construct. I mean, we don't have to. We could, you know, tweak Social Security, tweak Medicare, tweak Medicaid, but that's political suicide. We probably aren't doing that. And obviously, you got to pay your interest on, on the debt. Um, but that's about, there's not but about 1.67, 1.8, somewhere between 1.6 and 1.8 trillion in non-discretionary spending. Half of that is defense. I mean, it, that's just an unfathomable amount of money to spend every single year on a sector of the economy that we hope to never use. <laughs> I mean, think of that, guys. We're spending nearly a trillion dollars, and you and I have agreed, Rev, that a trillion is almost a supernatural number. I mean, it's it's like that's not a real. Well, we number. throw that around now like it's nothing. I mean, you just said, oh, one point six trillion. They did this deal, one point six. But a trillion seconds was how long? It's thirty two thousand years ago. I mean, imagine, one it, trillion. It's almost a supernatural number that doesn't even exist. But we're spending about a trillion dollars every year that we don't have, and of the one point six, seven, or eight trillion, depending on what reporting you trust, we're spending about half that on defense spending. Um, Dr. Will Bold is with us, history chair, Francis Marion. University, I got to believe that the hinges at Monticello are made of uber strong titanium. Because if Jefferson knew that we were spending a trillion dollars a year that we don't have, he'd come out of the grave and get us That's, if he could. Well, I'm just trying to figure out how many zeros are at the my, my, my head spinning right now. It's, it's truly in the morning for that. And so, yeah, Jefferson, uh, no, he's not. Uh, Rolling over at his grave. He's digging his way out <laughs> as a result of this mess. I mean, he was the, the quintessential, at least in his as a politician, was a Forget penny that pincher. Louisiana purchase. That didn't count. It was too good of a deal to pass. And Jefferson, in his own personal life, <clears throat> never met a French wine that he didn't like. And so he, uh, the, uh, the debits outweighed the credits in his own personal life. But as, as president, he was obsessed with lowering 
the debt, and Jefferson cut the debt in half as president, left the country with a surplus, which could have been applied to the debt as well. Oh, and all the way, there was a $15 million unintended expenditure, which he had to deal with as well. So Jefferson really left the country on sound financial footing uh, once he left the presidency. Uh, War of 1812 sort of messed that up after he left the presidency. Would Jefferson have, I mean, it's hypothetical, but it's all academic exercising. Would Jefferson have been more offended by the debt or the amount of money we spend on our military? Jefferson, yeah, Jefferson believed, again, each of the states, you don't need a large army. Each of the states have a militia. And so that was Jefferson's philosophy. A standing army is a bad thing. It's only going to cause you problems down the road. You know, you get some renegade, some rogue general. Now you've got problems on your hand. Jefferson, again, hated the Navy. He thought it catered to the aristocracy. And Jefferson's philosophy was, we can't compete with the British. Why should we even bother try and compete with them? And I've told you the story, right? Jefferson, a fleet of mosquito gunboats. Let's put a cannon on a rowboat. Cheap, efficient. And can you just imagine if you're the captain of a 50-gun British frigate and you see a small little rowboat with a cannon? You don't even waste a shot, the shell. But, Dr. Bolt, a lot of the founders, Adams... Jefferson and Washington come to mind. You could yeah. do a better job of, yeah. of talking about this than I. They all gave warnings about foreign entanglements. Yes, there is. They always believed that if America is going to remain, you know, an experiment in freedom and liberties and self-preservation, we, we got to be careful about trying to police. I mean, they never said police the world right, except but- that. They, they didn't know Raytheon, McDonnell Douglas, <laughs> and General Dynamics. I mean, I understand all of that. I do wonder what they would do today if they gathered and said, Hey, did you know how much money we spent with Raytheon or, or, or General Dynamics or Honeywell? But but in all honesty, all of the founders in general warned us about aggressively pursuing foreign entanglements. I think they could do that from their position. Europe is four weeks away by a by a ship, and that's if the winds are at your back. All right. So again, anything that was going on over there, that's the other side. Of the world. I mean, why why bother losing any sleep? Uh, why concern yourself with anything that's going on over there? In the, once we had established our independence, uh, the chances of the British being able to bring over enough troops and supplies to seriously threaten us in the future uh, were very, very slim. Certainly it was a possibility. And the odds of the United States being able to raise enough troops and get them over to London or France uh, to have an army of conquest is certainly uh, impossible at that time. Is it fair to hypothetically <laughs> consider what the founders would think today? I mean, you're right. Uh, Europe's not four weeks away by boat. Right. <laughs> um, the world's a dangerous place. There's no question. The sure. world has become dependent upon American leadership. It expects Absolutely. America to lead in certain ways, shapes, or form. Well, like but, but is it fair to try and speculate what some of the revered founders would do if placed in our current government construct. It's 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 a fun parlor game, and so yeah, of course, it's 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 a fun kind of thing. What would Washington do? How would Jefferson react to some of these situations today? And again, it's something. There's there's no right answer. Again, we can kind of go back and forth. And we've said this before. Uh, Jefferson, he's like the uh, the classic utility infielder. Jefferson, we pre- Jefferson's papers, we've preserved all of them. And so, no matter what issue today. You know, abortion, guns rights, states rights, anything. You can kind of find a Jefferson letter probably on both sides of the issue. And so, again, he is still he still kind of speaks to us. Even the guys, Ben, we're coming up on the, the 200th anniversary 
of his passing. Certainly, the founders still have a lot to teach us, and we can still learn a lot from them, absolutely. Let, let me ask you this, because I'd be interested in your opinion here. So the courts are going to have a lot to say about Trump. I mean, in, in the future, the Supreme Court will decide some yeah. of the faint future on the indictments. The Supreme Court will decide whether he can be on the ballot in certain states right. that have taken him off the ballot, Colorado and Maine come to mind. We wonder if they're going to give a blanket decision that says, hey, I mean, this All guy right. wins the Republican nomination. He's going to be yeah. on the uh, he's going to be on the ballot. He's going to be on the general election ballot and put that to bed. Um, right. In the early days of America, we're talking about the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. In the early days of America, were there any big legal decisions rendered by a court that, that went to the constitutionality or not of said issue? Well, nothing, nothing like that. But again, this is when the – once Jefferson wins the presidency in 1800, 1801, officially, uh, the defeated Federalists retreat to the judiciary. Uh, the lame duck Congress – Explain that. Uh, the Federalists realized they had lost – they lost control of Congress. They lost the presidency. And we're now afraid of Jefferson sort of inaugurating a French-style revolution here in America. So a lame duck Congress, the Federalists who had been just defeated, uh, created 16 new federal court judges, put John Marshall as the chief justice of the Supreme Court, didn't let Jefferson pick any of these judges. And the thought was they could, if Jefferson tries anything dangerous, truly radical, here's where we can sort of act as a check, a block. And the appointment of Marshall as Chief Justice. Marshall was Chief Justice for nearly 35 years, uh, probably our greatest Chief Justice, but made a whole series of wide-ranging decisions which increased the size uh, and power of the national government. And the Federalist Party kind of withers away in 1816. Marshall is still there into the 1830s. You see, he didn't get the memo, right, that, hey, the, we've moved on from the Federalists, uh, but Marshall kind of hung around. And again, he is regarded as our greatest Chief Justice and just a constant thorn, a pain in the you-know-what to Thomas Jefferson. But that would have been the first example of an activist judiciary. Uh, and Jeff, I mean, they they right. couldn't beat Jefferson at the, at the, at the ballot exactly. box, so to speak. So let's usurp some of what he tries to do and via the judiciary. Your point a few minutes ago of Jefferson, if he were alive today, Jefferson at the time thought that the Supreme Court had six members originally, then seven. You know, Seven unelected men at that time making decisions that can't be appealed, that are final, that's undemocratic. And Jefferson would be horrified if he saw just how much power the Supreme Court has right now. And since we're, we have so much gridlock, every decision, every law that is passed, it's passed with the expectation that we're going to punt. It's going to wind up in the lap of the Supreme Court. And again, nine unelected men and women are going to have to make this ultimate decision. And again, that's why every Senate seat is so important, right? You want to make sure you've got a majority on this on the Senate. So when there's a vacancy on the court, you could put your guy on there. Is it fair <clears throat> to say that Jefferson never looked at judicial as a co-equal branch of government? Or he reluctantly looked at judiciary? I mean, to me, when I read what Jefferson wrote, and I try to better understand some of the um, autobiographies about what he intended <laughs> to say and, and what he meant when he said this and what he thought about when he, when he thought about this, I'm led to believe that he looked at judiciary, judiciary as, as almost a necessary evil yeah to help settle some of the squabbles, but they should never, or it should never, that branch of government should never carry the authority or weight of duly elected officials. It's kind of like the kid at a little part. They should be seen and not heard. Only in the most rare instances should the Supreme Court be involved, or the, the federal court system be involved. And so once again, the Federalists retreated the judiciary and started making these rulings. Who led that charge for the Federalists? 
Who was the chief antagonist to Jefferson that, that identified as a Federalist? We got again, John Marshall is the guy. Uh, he's the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Even when Jefferson started putting his own guys on the Supreme Court, uh, he gets a guy from Massachusetts called Joseph Story, who is a Democratic Republican. Marshall charmed him. And so suddenly this guy, before he's on the court, is towing the party line, now suddenly starts ruling and siding with, with John Marshall and becomes a great nationalist. And Jefferson just can't believe that, that Marshall was so persuasive. He had corrupted. Uh, he had flipped. He had turned. One of the guys he thought for sure was going to stand up and sort of stymie or slow down uh, the accumulation of power by the national government, which the Supreme Court was leading us towards. And so Jefferson, again, talked about uh, perhaps going after the Supreme Court. Andrew Jackson, later on, in messages to Congress, talked about the need to make drastic change to the Supreme Court. Jackson didn't get to do it. He had bigger fish to fry in South Carolina and the Second Bank of the United States. So Jefferson runs and gets elected as a Democratic Republic. Mm -hmm. When did the Republican Party become, I mean, you got the Whigs, you got the, the Federalists, yeah. I mean, but, but when did, I mean, Jeffersonian was, was not a party, but rather a mindset, right? <clears throat> Hamilton dies when? Hamilton gets dies killed. 1804 in, in New Jersey. He, he shot in New Jersey and his last words are, row me back to New York. Yeah. Don't let me die in the armpit. Of America. So, 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 so Jefferson gets elected in 1800. 1800, and then wins again in 1804. Going away in 1804. Okay. <laughs> so, so Hamilton dies at the beginning of Jefferson's second term. Yeah. Right before he's, he's reelected. But yep. Jefferson gets reelected, gets elected and reelected as yep. a Democrat Republic. Yeah. When did it become solely the Republican Party? Because Lincoln was a Republican. Yeah. Right. Now, now, Jefferson's Democratic Republic, they kind of use that term Democratic Republican and Republican interchangeably. Uh, and so eventually it kind of fades away. In the next party system, you have Whigs and Democrats. And then, of course, in 1854, the new modern Republican Party is founded. And again, it's no accident that they picked that name. They're linking themselves to Jefferson and his legacy. That's very, I mean, that, that's the chronology of the, yeah, the, the chronology of how they evolved into the modern, what we'll call the modern day uh, duopoly, Republicans and Democrats. We'll take a break. Sure. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, back in just a few moments. My man is rocking. He's killing yeah, it, Rev. Another, another good one. Well, I mean, he's, he's, he's really, when you think about it, he's such a young buck to be playing us. I mean, he, he, he sends off all these insulting messages to the voice man, right? Mm -hmm. That you and I share a brain. I mean, yeah. that's not insulting to you, to, oh, to, to, oh. to you. It is to me. Right. Because I know what the interpretation is. Yeah. You got the one smart guy that doesn't say much. You got the dummy that runs his mouth <laughs> all the time. It's I mean, a 90-10 deal. Figure I mean, out which but, one. But I understand that. I mean, I know what the, um, <laughs> I, I know what the, um, the casual interpretation of that is. Um, you know, the guy that keeps his mouth shut is the smart guy. The guy that runs his mouth all the time is the guy you got to be careful with. But then he plays the Stone Springsteen and Mellencamp. I mean, how do you get and Seeger? Yeah, he's playing this rep. He's savvy, is what he is. At such a at such an oh, early yeah. age, and he wants no a doubt about that. And he wants a dictator. Um, <laughs> and he's got some other ideas and notions that we'll um, explore as the show progresses. Um, Doctor Bold is with us, rocking his Buffalo Bills sweatshirt. That's right. Uh, big weekend for the Bills. That was it. Was a, a great work, a great weekend for us. Kind of went in. The Bills had the chance to be either the number two seed or completely miss the playoffs and thankfully Jacksonville lost early Sunday which at least guaranteed the Bills a spot and they were kind of sloppy against Miami early on I was like oh man you know we're going as a seventh seed take our chances but uh 
96-yard punt return. Yeah. Oh, my God, that most people didn't even know was on the roster. Uh, longest in Buffalo Bills history, and then uh, kind of shut them down from there, held to the Dolphins to just uh, 60 yards in the second half. So nice, uh, good time to be a Bills fan. And they're the two seed. The two seed, and get yeah. to play Pittsburgh, who has a third-string quarterback and whose best player probably can't play, but they're looking for a lot of, ironically enough, a lot of cold, a lot of wind. Uh, so and Pittsburgh can run the ball, so well, that's I mean, the one and, thing. And, and both those field. teams are kind of built right. for cold weather. I mean, they built really. for late season NFL. That's the difference, Rev, the NFL mm-hmm. and college. Um, I mean, you don't know where the games are going to be played, but you know some of the games will be in the Northeast. <laughs> They'll be in January, and you're going to have bad weather. I mean, you're just going yeah. to have bad weather. I'll give an example. To me, the Dallas-Green Bay game is all about where's that game going to be played. Yeah. <laughs> Dallas is the higher seed. That game will be in Jerry World. Weather yeah. doesn't matter. But if Dallas had to go to Green Bay and play in Lambeau in the off. middle of January, you better believe it. I mean, Dallas has a better team. But if they go to Lambeau in mid-January, it's um, <laughs> no, it's no. very much what to the way. Packers' advantage. And look at well, poor Miami loses to Buffalo, and the reward is they have to go to Kansas City, yeah. and it's expected to be sub-zero and, uh, when and, they play on Saturday night. And, and I've always said that's what makes wild card weekend in the NFL is the best weekend yeah. of football that, that we know. I mean, I, I'm a yeah. big college football fan, and I love the beginning of the season, and I love the SEC, and I'm excited about Texas and Oklahoma. But wild card weekend, because you're going to see half the games in inclement weather. You're going to snow. You're going to have Pittsburgh and, and Buffalo <laughs> going at it, and you're thinking about which team does the weather advantage. Neither team. Right. I mean, Buffalo yeah. builds their Both teams for, for cold weather, and Pittsburgh builds their teams uh, for cold yep. weather. I want to go down the road with you. That um that that and there's no right answer to this. It's kind of an interesting sure. um hypothetical to play out. You and I had a conversation off the air, and I think we agree that Jackson may have been more Jeffersonian <laughs> than Jefferson. Yeah. And but it didn't immediately follow Thomas Jefferson. It took, it took a while. Okay, yeah. but but Jeffersonian is a is a belief, ideology, a political premise. It's something that was um, incubated out of yeah. Thomas Jefferson. Good way to put it. But, but, but along yeah. comes, I don't want to say a dead period, but nobody was able to enforce Jeffersonian beliefs in the way of government than Andrew Jackson. Sure. Yeah. Is there a similarity with Trump? I in, in, in other words, Trump is, let, let's for argument's sake, I mean, I think this hurts you at the ballot box, but just because we're amongst friends, Trumpism. <laughs> Trumpism is a byproduct of a political force of nature named Donald Trump. And and, and a broken system. But but we believe there has to be a a second phase, a third phase, if it is to sustain as Jeffersonians um, or as Jeffersonian government did for half a a century. How long did we wait from Jefferson to Jackson? And why do you believe Jackson was more of a Jeffersonian than the founder and creator of that political belief than than the founder himself. Yeah, Je- Jefferson leaves the presidency 1829, 1809, 20 years later is when Andrew Jackson is inaugurated. So maybe 20 years is what uh, – there were lots of guys who came after Jefferson who called themselves Jeffersonians, but in actuality in many ways became became Hamiltonians. They be, sort of became – Milk-toast. So that, that's an excellent I mean, they, way. They were very milk-toast. Okay, I mean, these guys supported a high protective tariff, created – a national bank. Andrew Jackson comes around and says, uh-uh, good boys, we're getting rid of all this stuff. This isn't what Thomas Jefferson would have wanted or supported. 
So again, maybe the next, the guy or the woman who's going to get America first across the finish line is somebody who's not on our radar, somebody in a, a state legislature somewhere, maybe just starting their mark, their rise in politics. And so maybe 10 years down the road, uh, we might finally say, all right, it, it was a long, tough battle. But for those of us who were with Trump and America first at the beginning, uh, it, t- it, t- it, t- it took a long while, but we finally got the ball across the finish line. So is it fair to say that those who followed Jefferson and preceded Jackson gave into the entrapments, the entrapments of power and sure. influence? Yeah, power corrupts. And once these guys kind of got into power, got their hands on the purse strings, kind of forgot who they were and why they were sent to Washington originally. And Andrew Jackson, who met Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson Jackson served. Who did they first meet? Uh, 1798, Jackson is in the Senate. Served just a, a year and a half, hated it. Uh, resigned, went back to Tennessee. But Jackson was very, very passionate. Young man at this time, gave some speeches. He'd turn beet red. He'd curse. He'd slur his words. He'd stammer. And Jefferson, the very refined presiding officer of the Senate, uh, didn't have any nice things to say about Jackson. Jackson didn't make a good impression. So then when Jackson starts his rise to prominence in 1824, and Jefferson's like, I remember this guy. You know, we need to avoid this guy. You know, had Jefferson lived to see Jackson in the presidency, almost certainly he would have said, this guy understood it. This, this guy is more Jefferson than myself. But I, he think, didn't live. I think the takeaway, Rev and Josh, is that we're looking for the immediate follow-up to Trump. I mean, if America first is similar to Jeffersonian government, and it's going to be a kind of a reshaping of the mindset of the body politic, that, that person may not be on the scene yet. Right. It's, it's, I mean, they may be running a business in Colorado right. today, and um, and it may take 10 or – I mean, we waited 20 years for the for the real Jeffersonian to rear its head yeah. again, that being Andrew Jackson. And I got to say this, if government – if the power of government was an allure back then, imagine the allure it is today. Imagine how captivating it would be to go to Washington – in the name of America first, right. in the name of make America great again, but you kind of walk that plank by yourself, and here's all the luxuries and benefits of the historical government. Um, it's going to take a—it'll take another Andrew Jackson. Right. Well, I mean, the, the, it the really old, will. The old Andrew Jackson saying is, one man with courage makes a majority. So, again, and, and think of how many people now that Trump has inspired to get into politics. How many America firsters are at the school boards right now kind of cutting— their teeth, right? County legislatures, city legislatures, state legislatures, ready to make that next move. So I, I still think if you play the long game, uh, it'll all work out in the end. Somebody on the phone, let's go there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. You are on with Dr. Bolt. Good morning, sir. Dr. Bolt, I got a question. Yes, I got sir. two questions for you. What did the um, South Carolina written statement when they withdraw from the union? It, it was certainly one of the wealthiest uh, at the time. Oh, absolutely. And then there was the the Southern economy at the brink of the Civil War uh, was one of the most profitable in the entire uh, world. And so sadly, this for the argument that slavery was withering away at the time, sadly, um, is, is not true. And in some of these Southern states, particularly Virginia and Tennessee, uh, there was something of at least an industrial beachhead that had been established. Some of the states were, again, starting to move away, putting their capital into other areas. The deep, deep south, such as South Carolina, 
uh, not yet had moved that. The, the, the economy <laughs> was predicated on slave labor. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. There's no other way to look at it. Yes, absolutely. You can't correct. You can't, you, can't, you can't deny that. I mean, the, the economy in South Carolina at the time of the, the, the Civil War was predicated on slave labor. No, that's, that's, that's Thank the, you, Williams. Appreciate, it. appreciate the call. Um, yeah, I mean, I think to, to deny that is just being fundamentally dishonest, intellectually no, dishonest. Now, do I believe you can say that, believe that, and, 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 and accept that the Confederacy was unbelievably complicated? I mean, no. I don't think they're exclu- exclusive of one another. No, do you? And, do you? And, and lots of guys who had to fight for the South in the Civil War did so under duress. They were conscripted. They were drafted, and for the South, it was a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. And lots of these guys didn't really have a dog in this fight. They were told they had to. And a lot of these guys uh, volunteered to fight because the northern soldiers were coming down into their homelands. And so that's why they shouldered up a musket and went off the fight. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. The next batch of voice messages, <laughs> no, the, the next batch of um, insults from the voice guy are going to be epic. I mean, I can assure. I mean, he's greasing the skin. He's Must setting us be. up. I mean, there's no telling. He's just playing a there's game no now. telling the um, the 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 incoming that you and I'll have to deal with. <laughs> I, I don't um, know. Next week. I don't know if we told Josh that Bruce Springsteen was actually banned from the show for a while. Well, I mean, he he's back in good standing. I mean, apparently. Well, I mean, you serve you you pay your penalty to society, and you, <laughs> right? And you move along. Doctor Wilbolt, history chair, Francis Marion University, he's every bumper is with song. us. You're originally from where, Rev? Cincinnati, Ohio. You're originally from where, Dr. Bolt? Great city of Buffalo, New York. Okay, I'm from Pamplico, <laughs> South Carolina. That's about as southern <laughs> as it gets. And I'm insulted, and I mean this sincerely. Um, I'm insulted about this non-debate where we've, we've never had on the Confederacy. You're an early American historian. No. I'm a southerner. The, 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 there, there are many voices in America that believe I condone slavery just because I'm a southerner. That's an insult. Um, I think the only answer when asked about the Civil War is slavery is disgusting. I mean, it's reprehensible. The belief that one human being has authority and rights to own another human being is, I mean, whatever descriptive you want, it's inhumane, it's disgusting, it's reprehensible. But I think to suggest that the Confederacy was that and that alone is what modern intelligentsia have tried to convince the world of, and it's an insult, not to a guy from Cincinnati, not to a guy from Buffalo, but to a Southern man. It's quite insulting for the world to believe, well, you know, those Southerners, they fought long and hard on behalf of preserving slavery. Not true. Absolutely not true. Dr. Bolt, is that historically accurate? No, it's, it's, again, I'm very lucky. I get to teach the Civil War. It's probably one of the most popular courses that we have. In the history department, and it tells you people are still fascinated. They want to know uh, about this. It's the it's the crossroads. It's the pivot in American history. And again, I'm I'm from the north. Sort of grew up maybe with certain expectations, but I spent a lot of time in Tennessee. And the a lot of the guys I knew in Tennessee were very very proud of their their ancestors who fought with the Army of Tennessee during the Civil War. And they they were not slaveholders. They fought to defend their homes. Fought to fight different. Fought because guys who sound like me. Uh, had come down south. And so right, there, there is a lot more uh, to it. Again, the slavery is the cause of the Civil War. Uh, when the Confederacy was created, it wasn't shy about this. Many of the states, when they seceded, put this in as one of the main reasons why they seceded. But again, the, the average Southerner didn't have really a dog in that fight. Again, got constricted, got forced, got goaded 
uh, into fighting. I thought, well, it's going to be quick. It's, it's, it's going to be a three-month fight. I might as well go out and get involved, show my manhood, and that way I can put my grandkids on my lap and say, I fought some Yankees a couple of years ago. And most of these guys, once this thing starts to drag out, there's not that many guys who are there in 1861 who make it to the finish line unless you're a, unless you're a general. Again, many of these guys under cover of darkness, and I'm, I'm slipping behind the lines, or they're anxiously counting down the days once their enlistments are up. And a lot of these guys, there was no amount of money in the world uh, which could get them to reenlist and continue. They saw uh, you have these battles of get it, 50,000 guys or casualties. Grant comes east, and in the span of six weeks, he loses 50,000 men are killed. This is why he was called Mr. Lincoln's Butcher. And so a lot of these guys said, uh-uh, this, this isn't for me, and got it as quickly as they could. And, Dr. Bolt, there are examples <laughs> of, of a certain degree of camaraderie between yep. Union soldiers and, yep. and, and rebel soldiers, the Confederate yep. soldiers. I mean, there, yep. there, there, was a, I mean there, there was a disgusting on each side, on each side of, man, all this killing. I mean, why am I trying to kill you and you're trying yeah. to kill me? I understand slavery, and there is no doubt it was the central issue in the Civil right. War, but it was it's not the, the only spark. issue in the Civil War. And I've read, you would know better than I, I've read that at times there were agreements and there were deals and there were uh, between Union and, and Confederate oh, sure. soldiers. And look, man, I mean, I understand why you're here. I hope you understand why I'm here. I got no interest in killing you, and right. I hope you don't have any interest in killing me. Yeah, and there were numerous instances where maybe a, a high-ranking general would maybe stray too close to the lines during a lull in the fighting. There'd be several snipers who'd easily have him in their sights and say, "No, no, no, this is this 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 is murder. We're not gonna." He's just sort of surveying the lines, or he's just kind of walking around, just getting a little bit of exercise, you know, taking a shot at this guy. And again, right when there was lulls in the fighting, the the soldiers would come together, uh, exchange coffee, exchange medicine, exchange tobacco with one another. And maybe one of the best signs of camaraderie, it's called the, the Battle of Stones River in Tennessee. Uh, one of the nights the two armies were close together, a Union band started playing some songs. I played the battle hymn of the Republic, John Brown's Body. And then when they were done, the Confederates shouted back, play some of our songs. And the Union band played Dixie, the Bonnie Blue Flag. And then after that, it played Home Sweet Home, which was a song dear to both sides, and you had probably 100,000 guys singing at the same time. I mean, you, just, you can't make this stuff up. And so it, it reminds us that even in our bleakest hours, there's still so much more uh, that unites us than divides us. Well said. Let's go to the phone. Jim and Florence, you're on with Dr. Bolt. Hey, good morning. Good morning, sir. Uh, it's, good, it's good to have you this morning because it's a very important day in Southern history. Um, I think Mississippi uh, seceded. Anniversary. Yep. And, but more importantly here, um, a bunch of boys down at, in Charleston uh, fired some cannons at the start of the West um, as uh -huh. they tried to resupply uh, Fort Sumter and, and turn that vessel around um, you know, back when even the boys were men back then. <laughs> but um, you know, I feel like when we talk about this war, there's all this interest, even from people that hate us down here, there's all this interest in, um, in the Southern soldier where can we go to to really find a deep dive into what Private Smith, the Grand yeah. Army of the Republic, was thinking? Um, and I, I'd really like to get some direction on that um, and see what he was thinking before, um, at the onset, and during the war. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. There's, there's a good book. The, one of the leading Civil War scholars, James McPherson, 
He, he teaches up, or taught up at Princeton, but uh, wrote a very good book called For Cause and Comrades and kind of looks at the motivation of both the, uh, the, the northern and the southern soldier. Uh, one of the great Civil War historians, a guy by the name of uh, Bell Wiley, uh, wrote a story of Billy Yank uh, and, and Johnny Reb uh, on both the Union and the Confederate perspective. And the, the Bell Wiley's book, that's, gosh, he wrote that in the 50s, uh, in the 60s. Still, though, uh, one of the classic and the standards, uh, one of the great Civil War historians uh, who's ever written. Very well explained. Dr. Bolt, thank you for your time. Hey, as always, guys. Thank you. Can, we, can we say go Bills? Absolutely. I mean, you know, they're playing you, you the sure. Steelers. Well, yeah. I mean, um, this is a kind of an odd fact about the Steelers. In their entire franchise existence, they've had three head coaches. That's exactly. I mean, they, they, they don't pull the plug. I mean, the Rooney family yes. kind of stays a little bit separate of the football team. And um, and then I think Bolt lots, knows this. Lots of patience. Well, I mean, I think Bolt knows this. The Steelers in the playoffs are, are a – I mean, it'll yes. be a slugfest. Yes, it's, I mean, they're, they're a proud franchise. I'm pulling for Buffalo we, because Allen reminds me of Favre. Allen's so fun to watch. He's, he's, well, I mean, just he, let him cook. Just let he, him chuck into the – He makes mistakes, over. but then he does things that make up for the mistakes. He does things that you're like, wow. Uh, he's just a big, strong guy with a um, a heart for winning. Two, two interceptions yesterday, but 350 passing yeah. and another 60 on the ground. He, he, I'm weapon. telling you, he's this generation's Brett Favre. Yeah, we're lucky to have him. Kind of a gunslinger. Um, good luck. Thanks, guys. We'll take Appreciate a break. It. We'll be back in just a few moments. Last hour of a Tuesday morning, 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, we have an abundance of storm fuel. We had a meteorologist tell us that this morning. We think inclement weather will begin sometime around noon, high winds, late afternoon. you got to be careful. I mean, it's not summertime in South Carolina. It's not hurricane season, but we're in kind of an odd weather pattern that Andrew Dockery of WMBF did a good job of explaining. I know enough to be dangerous. I'll just leave it there. Be careful and um, and pay attention to the um, the periodic weather reports. Um, it ain't Iowa, right? I mean, the weather in South Carolina is remote. I mean, Iowa is going to be cold. It's going to be treacherous, we think. There's a weather forecast for inclement weather during the Iowa caucus. A lot of Republican voters are, uh, shall I say, in the winter of of their lives. There's always concern about turnout and how many people decide to go and caucus. Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. Less than a week until the Iowa caucus. What's out there, Jeff? What, what, what do you think we can expect? Well, 1,657 precincts across the state of Iowa uh, will be holding caucuses uh, in, in just a matter of days. And the storm is brewing for some sunlight for at least one candidate uh, on Monday as presidential hopefuls continue making that push across Iowa's 99 counties before the 2024 Iowa caucuses. And essentially the, 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 the official start of the 2024 presidential season. President Trump dominating in the polling in the state that uh, Republican Governor Kim Reynolds endorsed Ron DeSantis, uh, a state where Nikki Haley has picked up momentum, uh, catching up to DeSantis, who's second, though all, again, well behind former President Trump. Jeff, it seems to me last night was a college football championship, and I watched experts tie themselves in knots, trying to convince themselves that Washington had a chance to beat Michigan. Um, the purists said, no, Michigan just simply better. And, and it, it, it proved itself to be true on the field. You, you, you touched on something at the end. I mean, Donald Trump is in a very commanding position. It is a caucus. It is unpredictable. The weather may play a part or not. 
But there's no denying that Donald Trump is in a commanding position uh, as we head into the last week of the Iowa caucus. Yeah, I mean, first of all, go blue. Uh, second, uh, the, <laughs> you know, it's, it's been a different ground game for the former president versus 2016. You know, the, the, the amount of volunteers, the, the amount of efforts they're putting into it, uh, more of a data-driven uh, campaign in the state of, of, of Iowa. And, and so, you know, they're, they're doing all they can um, and, and you know, trying to make a, a good, solid showing uh, for this 2024 campaign, and by all indications, polling shows that he is—he's he, the—he's the one to beat. So we'll see. As far as weather in Iowa, I mean, this is—you know—this is what they do, and, and and I'm not sure that this is going to stop people from getting into uh, these caucus events with, you know, top of mind what's so important to them. Whether, look, I've traveled across Iowa numerous times, and, and we'll be there this this next week. Whether you're Democrat, Independent, Republican, it's all the same. It's it's the border crisis. It's it's the struggling economy and, and it's crime, even foreign policy and foreign wars that that people are taking with them into caucuses. So uh, we'll see how it shakes out. Obviously, it's crunch time, the eleventh hour, and and things are getting personal between these. Uh, uh, let's just say even more personal uh, between these these candidates. But uh, but we'll see. A couple days away. We'll explain, Jeff. And I will say this: if Michigan got a, an easier draw last night beating the sec champion to get there validates their football supremacy this year as an sec homer michigan best team in america and rightfully deserved to be crowned champion last night thank you my friend indeed you bet uh yeah i mean i heard a lot this morning about you know washington not should have been there uh not the second best team in america yeah alabama and georgia played for the sec championship game alabama figured out a way to outlast outlast Georgia. Michigan beat them in overtime. And and I'm telling you, the body of work. I mean, they, they were the best team in America. Was there a week or two or three that Georgia looked better? Was there a week or two or three that maybe Texas looked better? Yeah. But um, Michigan answered the bell every single time, figured out a way to beat the SEC champion, which is kind of critical in today's college football playoff system, and uh, and then went on to beat an outmanned Washington team. Uh, I'm like you, Rev. I wanted to watch the electricity of the quarterback. Michigan defense mm-hmm. put a lot of pressure on him, and he, I don't want to say struggled, but he did not have the kind of night he needed to have if Washington were to upset Michigan. The better question is this. What does Harbaugh do now? I mean, he's, 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 he's rejuvenated Michigan football. I mean, they've been to the playoffs a couple of times, won a championship last night. I mean, the, the last notch in his belt is Super Bowl champion. I mean, does he, his brother's coaching the one seed in the AFC, John Harbaugh and the Baltimore Ravens, does Jim Harbaugh want another chance to win a Super Bowl in the NFL? I mean, the answer to that short, yeah. I mean, absolutely he does. Is now the time to bolt? Um, I think it is. I mean, I think Michigan. Go out on top. Yeah, I mean, I think Harbaugh leaves and goes to the NFL um, I was on and a after the controversies of the season, or he's suspended for the games and the sign stealing well, stuff. I, I've got a theory on that. I've got a. I think Jim Harbaugh is Tom Brady like in his competitiveness. I mean, I think he's uber competitive. I. It, it's a little bit like this. Harbaugh's good. Michigan's good. Why do what they did? I think there are some people, and I think Brady's one of these, and I think Larry Bird was one of these, and I think Michael Jordan. I think the greatest of the great have this unbelievable edge about them. 
And anytime they believe they can gain an advantage and there's not a clearly defined yes or no, you know, it's a little bit gray and a little bit ambiguous. Can you do this? I don't know. I mean, you can interpret the, 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 the code of conduct or the law to say, nah, you can't. The rule, the rule says you can't or you can. Well, the rule doesn't really say what you can and cannot do. There's some gray there. And I think if you give somebody with such an extreme competitive nature that opportunity to get in the gray, they're going to always do it. I mean, they're just going to always. And I think Jim Harbaugh is one of these uber competitive people that if you don't clearly, Jim, you can't do that. I mean, that's clearly breaking not the spirit of the game and not the handshake agreement, but the NCAA rule says you can't do this. Now, I understand electronic equipment and recording signals and signs and, and whatnot. The travesty in all this is he's good enough to not do it. And Michigan's good enough to not have done it. I mean, they, they, they've got great players all over the place. He is a great, great football coach, but I don't think he can help himself. I think any chance, I'll give you to uh, Tom Brady. I mean, Brady knows how many omega-3s are in every salmon that has ever been caught out of the Great Atlantic or, or the, uh, the the Alaska halibut, whatever, protein. I mean, he counts protein. He eats half of a ham sandwich one week, and he drinks half of a beer every – I mean, Brady – I mean, he, he's such in – he's a control freak. He's in control of everything that he's ever touched. I mean, his diet, the offensive game plan, the assistant coaches. But he didn't know how much air was in that football. <laughs> right. I don't know, Coach. Tom, you know everything. You're so meticulous and attentive to detail. You didn't know how much. And I didn't. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know they went in that right. I didn't even know where they kept the footballs. They just bring me a football. You're right. You're right. I've counted calories for the last 26 years. I mean, I know the percentage of body fat I need to be maximum perform. I mean, I got in a hyperbaric tr- chamber three days last week and, a, you know, a, an ice bath two weeks because my left shoulder needed 6.5% uh, more uh, flexibility. But, but I don't know how much air was in those. He knew damn well how much air was in those footballs, <laughs> and he knew he tinkered with them. And, and to Harbaugh and Bray, they didn't need that. But I don't think they can help themselves. I think there's some bent gene that some people have when they become so competitive and have such a burning desire to win, and they believe if they don't take advantage of that gray, they're leaving a little opportunity on the table. And, um, you know, I heard it yesterday. Well, I mean, Michigan didn't have to do that, or this morning. They didn't have to do that. I mean, they're good enough without doing that. Harbaugh's a good enough coach to not do that. I think Michigan didn't do it. I think Harbaugh did it. I think he directed it. I think he absolutely wink, nod, hey, that graduate assistant's pretty smart, didn't he? Went to Naval Academy. Real good with numbers and analytics. Nah, just make us better. <laughs> just, just make us better. Figure out a way to make us better. 843-661-0937. I want to go back to a conversation we had off the air. Because I believe with all my heart that Josh is not a sincere soul. <laughs> I notice you're inspired this morning because think, of think, all the think, Springsteen bumper I mean, music. I, I think Josh comes across as one of these church going, you know, love the Lord and all this good stuff. And and then he throws out this, um, I want a dictator. You know, and I'm like, oh, a lot of consi- inconsistencies there. But he's 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 gained favor with, with the yours truly in the Royal Rev of radio by – playing a lot of 70s and 80s bumper music, right? And and it's been refreshing. It's been exhilarating for me. I'm like, wow, okay, Josh, thumbs up. Thumbs have. up. You know, I and, you have. and Josh sitting there going like, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for you and Rev. I mean, it's not about me. It's never been about me. I'm doing it for you and Rev. I want you guys to be successful. I want you guys to look good. I think Josh has a, uh, a tranche 
I'm going to bunch a gaggle of voice work that he's already sent to the um to the hired gun to insult us, Reb. And I think you and I are going to be unbelievably insulted. Uh, and I think he's setting us up. I, I don't think there's a sincere bone in his body when it comes to the. I think Josh is a good soul. Don't get me wrong. But in this particular instance, I think he's up to no good. There's an evil plan. I mean, I, I think he's I absolutely up to no good. The other day, I walked by the studio after the show, and he was in there, and he's like, hey, I just sent some more stuff to the voice guy. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, kind of yeah. what I got. Yeah. That laugh. Hmm? Don't know what he's up to. In due something. time. In so, due time. So, so here's my question of you, Reb. Greatest bumper music ever. Hmm. And what is a good, in the days before computers, when, when DJs really did the legwork to keep the tables turning, so to speak, what was protocol? I mean, what, what, what was taboo? What was forbidden? What was, wow, we nailed that. I mean, some of the intros of a song are very, ah, they're, they're not a big deal. The others, some intros of the songs are the best part of the song. Sure. So what is, how did you determine, discern, um, educate yourself through the process of when, how, and where to speak? I would describe it more as formatic by design. So classic rock radio, or what used to be called AOR, album-oriented rock, um, the rule of thumb was you don't talk over the intros. I mean, the style of your radio announcer was more laid back as opposed to top 40 or country DJs. So I started in top 40 radio, and so it was all up-tempo. I mean, we, we laugh about the puking DJ. Hey, everybody, come, you know, whatever. And you'd walk up the intro, they called it, and then you'd want to what they call nail the post. So when the vocals started is when you shut up right before the right before the vocal started. Now, you know, listeners sometimes were mad that you were talking over their favorite song, but that that was the goal. It was all about forward momentum and keeping the energy going, and that was Top 40 Radio. Well, classic rock and AOR radio, you didn't talk over intros, and your approach was more laid back. And, and I have, you know, worked in all all the formats, and that was, a, that was a learning curve for me when I went from Top 40 to rock. Slow it down, be a little more natural, and yeah, you don't talk over the intros of songs. So some of the songs had to gain respect and the album-oriented rock had garnered a certain degree of respect. Is that fair to say? In other words, I mean, you were talking about Zeppelin. Well, well see g it. Okay, give me an example of a song that you just didn't monkey. You better be finished talking before the first note or chord <laughs> are struck. Well, but your premise of respect, I'm not going to go with that because that insinuates it's disrespectful to talk over the intro of a song. And okay. it's, it's not. I mean, it would, it's, it's it a style of delivery. Commercial in... oriented. Right. I mean, the, right. Here, here's the way. Okay, I'm on the outside looking in. I never met Dave Baker until we, well, I mean, Christmas one year when I did some Lieutenant Governor ads. But but I knew of you. I mean, you, you had been on my radio many, many years around here. I thought you did a good job. But I never thought about, I mean, you were a part of some songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, you know, the the top 40. I mean, you're going to play this song now, but you're going to probably play it in another hour or two. You know? Sure. So who cares if I don't nail the post? Who cares if I don't say enough or say, or say too much? To me, that is a disrespect of the song. The song hadn't gained the, the respect that a, a Zeppelin song deserves or a Stones or a Beatles or some song like that. But, but, it's so, not, but it's not about respect. It's an approach, delivery style, the production of the radio station, all but, fitting together okay, as a package. Okay, but would you agree that you become a part of the song? Your, your introducing the song is a part of the song. Sure. And if you're good at it, 
the song's probably a little better received. If you suck the, at the it. The whole presentation okay. is is better. But in classic rock, um, you know, and maybe it is, again, I don't necessarily like the word respect. But I'm trying to gin up a conversation. I know you, you don't like it. That's why I'm using yeah, it. Yeah, thank you. But the style was you intro the song, the artist or whatever, and then you start the song. You weren't as much worried about the momentum and the approach as, you know, can you imagine a DJ walking up the intro and talking over the beginning of Stairway to Heaven, to use your example? I mean, that would be, you just wouldn't do it. Is it criminal? Should yeah. it be criminal? <laughs> I think I, it, it, it's bad form. I'll put it that way. So you better be done introducing Led Zeppelin before Stairway of Heaven even begins. Yeah. Stairway That's respect, heaven. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. In, in a way, I mean, but. I, I see what you're saying, but it's, it is a stylistic approach. But w one thing I learned early on, speaking of music and when you talk and when you don't talk in classic rock radio, I'd made that transition, and I learned that you don't talk over the little whistle tweet bird at the end of Layla. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. The very end mm -hmm. of the Eric Clapton, Derek, and the Dominoes, Layla. It goes, it builds up to the end, and then it goes, tweet, tweet, <laughs> you know, kind of with a little whistle at the end. Well, if the DJ talked before that, the phones would light up and be like, what are you doing? Don't ever talk before the, the, the bird, the whistle, whatever you'd call it. So, but it's far more generic now, right? I mean, the personalities of DJs aren't as common as they once it's were. Different. It's different. It's certainly different. And, and I mean, to me, it's such a, I mean, you, you guys were a part of the record. I mean, you were, you know, this guy's on from three to six, this guy's on from six to nine. This is the early morning guy. Uh, this guy left that station and went to work somewhere else, you know, and this station was all the country music. Now it's classic rock. I mean, what's, what's up with that? I heard Glenn Fry. I'm um, talking about the Beatles, excuse me, the Eagles getting back together. And Glenn Fry said, yeah, I mean, we were a good band and we knew we were a good band. We had some issues as rock bands tend to have. We broke up, we, we got back together, but the biggest benefit to the Eagles rejuvenation was classic rock. I mean, there was nothing called classic rock. The Eagles got back together at about the same time. That format became popular. People our age were looking for nostalgia in music. We didn't like some of the state of music today. And I think more than not liking it, we liked saying we didn't like it. It's a little bit like <laughs> the people who say, I'm not on Facebook. Right. I didn't ask you. Right. I mean, I, I didn't ask you, Joe Scarborough, you leaving the GOP? No, but uh, yes, I'm, I'm thankful. I, thank you for asking because I wrote an op-ed. You see where I'm headed? If you remember in the in the mid '90s or so when the Eagles got back together, that was not long after the introduction of grunge. See, radio had an issue because it was the difference between what was rock, album-oriented rock, which it turned into classic rock, and then new rock music. And was there a compatibility between at that time? Nirvana was new music. Pearl Jam was new music. Metallica uh, was new music. Were they coming out with songs that were compatible with? Led Zeppelin, the Eagles, for example, the songs from the 70s. So it was after that where there was, there, there was a split, where there was new rock, alternative rock, classic rock, different formats. But before that, it was just kind Okay, of rock. Josh, I got to ask one question. I know we're behind, but I got to ask one question to Rev. Could the affinity you and I and our generation have for classic rock not given enough respect to the Nirvanas and the REMs and the Pearl Jams of the world. Well, I mean, you, you agree the, they're enormously talented. They've earned their respect over time. There's no Not doubt about it. Not with you and I. Well, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but but they've earned their place. There's no doubt. Um, but still, 
our music is the best that was but, ever but, made. But they were the one. They were Jack Nicholas trying to replace Arnold Palmer. They were Tom Watson trying to replace Jack Nicholas. They were LeBron James trying to replace Michael Magic but, and Larry. But, but when they but they came out, the question was where do they fit? And, and I'm talking from a, from a radio gotcha. programmer. So perspective. where does Pearl Jam fit? Well, they're, they're classic rock now. Where does okay? But when Aren't they, they? When, when they come on the scene, where do they fit? That they were alternative. They were metal. They were new rock, and that's kind of where. Where does Nirvana fit? I say, see, nowadays you you kind of look back, and it, it's it's in a way they're all kind of classic rock. Are they so not? Nirvana, Pearl Jam belong with the Eagles and Springsteen. You're you're yeah. I mean, there's there's places where you'll. It's a little bit blurred more now but, but, than it but was. You, you then. did kind of, in a weird way, agree that we were so enamored and attracted to the bands of our youth that we probably didn't give Pearl Jam, REM, uh, some of the uh, Nirvana. We probably get out of here. I mean, you, you, you guys, you guys have no business meddling in the affairs of the great bands of days <laughs> gone by. Take a break. I'm sorry, Josh. We went way long. Take a break. Back at a few. Josh, you're killing it, man. You're yes, killing sir. it with the bumper music, but I still <laughs> think you're setting us up. Uh, you're the younger guy. We're the older guys. You're um, you're, you're feeding us a steady dose of classic hits or classic rock, whatever Rev um, says the category is. <laughs> but I'm sure there's an ask on the other side of um of endearing yourself to the older folk on this team. Hey, uh, the Pentagon um, had a bit of a controversy over the weekend. Um, we're learning more. Uh, I think General Alston, Secretary Alston, has taken responsibility. But there's still a chain of command and an expectation that the American public have about who knows what, when, where, and how. Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you, sir? I am well. Listen, I don't think this is just about the American public knowing. The President of the United States ought to know where his uh, defense secretary is. And, and that seems to be something that did not happen for, for a couple of days after uh, the defense secretary Lloyd Austin was rushed to an ICU on New Year's Day. So, Jared, he has elective surgery and something becomes complicated. Yeah. He goes for a yeah. follow-up and is admitted to ICU. But at no point in time, who knew in the Pentagon? Do we know, has it been established, who in the Pentagon knew yeah. that he'd been well, put in intensive we, care? We, that's a good question. We would anticipate that his chief of staff would have known, although there is reporting out now that his chief of staff was home with the flu. Perhaps that is why, uh, you know, things didn't move in the way that they should have. The deputy uh, defense secretary would take over in any sort of incapacitation. She was in Puerto Rico on vacation at the time um, and was given notice that she was assuming command, but not really told about the ICU element of it, we're told. Um, the National Security Council was not aware until Thursday. A national security advisor was not told until Thursday. The president of the United States was not told until Thursday. Uh, and keep in mind, he had then been in the hospital since Monday, since New Year's Day. Um, and so there are a lot of questions, right, about who should have been responsible for moving this information forward. Um, I don't know if there was an expectation that the Secretary of Defense himself would have been in a position to do that, but certainly there is a protocol here, and that protocol was not followed. And a lot of members of Congress want to know why, uh, because you know the Secretary of Defense plays a pretty critical role in, in 
transforming the president in a crisis. And we don't have to look very far back in history to see the United States military being involved in these types of, of hotspots around the world that could quickly become a, a crisis point where the president has to make a decision about the use of force of, of the U.S. military. Jared, I've got a weird angle. Having been in politics, I have a lot of weird angles. I guess you adapt as a sense of paranoia that is unhealthy, but it's it's a, it's a nature. Yeah. The, it's a nature I think of the those beast. Of us in the press corps have, have that sense as well. Yeah, but well, well, you can relate as I can as well. But could this potentially the weird the weird angle is could this potentially put at risk additional funding to Ukraine? It seems there is a consensus on Israel, not so much on Ukraine. If you're one of these anti-interventionist, you know, um, America First Republicans, to me, you've got a better leg to stand on by trusting or not the Pentagon to be responsible and effective with the funds allocated to do whatever it is we're choosing to do. You see where I'm headed? I mean, to me, if I'm a Republican in Congress. I think it's a fair point. I don't know if that's the way the argument necessarily is made, but I think you make a fair point because one of the criticisms that Republicans especially have put forward as it relates to Ukraine aid is the transparency, making sure that we know how that weaponry is being used, how those funds as they relate to the government are being used, and that there is not enough oversight um, by the Pentagon uh, to give a proper report back to Congress. So in the broader sense of transparency at the Defense Department, at the Pentagon, you're absolutely right. This feeds into that, that, that criticism that this administration is not being upfront, is not being transparent with the American people and with the United States Congress. I think that is a, a fair point um, and maybe not even paranoia to bring up. <laughs> is there is there any belief that there will be a reprimand or any consequence to Secretary Alston not making the White House aware of where he is and what's happening? So far, no. Uh, yesterday on Air Force One, both the press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, and the National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby, were asked a lot of questions about that. And both of them repeated and reiterated that the president spoke with Secretary Austin on Saturday, remains committed and confident in the ability of Secretary Austin, uh, appreciated the accountability and the responsibility that the secretary put forward and looks forward for him returning to his position uh, at the Pentagon. Right now, no plans, we are told for any sort of change in leadership uh, at the Pentagon or in the Defense Department. Fair enough. Yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you for your reporting, okay. and we'll talk soon. These guys are really good. I mean, they, as, as, as critical as I am of Fox News, I mean, they, these folks are, I just believe this. You ready? I mean, I believe if the Fox News Network television were littered with these people, giving, giving these quality reports and opinions, they'd be in a better place. I understand uh, the, the era of entertainment. I mean, we talked a lot about the convergence of entertainment and enlightenment and how serious you could try to be and how enlightening and entertaining. I mean, there's a lot of things kicking in what we do here. They do it on a much grander scale. I mean, they're in the same business we're in. We're in the business of attracting listeners. They're in the business of attracting uh, viewers. They have a uh, kind of a visual that we don't have. Um, and they play to that visual very well. I'll give them credit. They have done a good job of understanding that they are a visual product. Um, take that for what it's worth. Um, from a good old boy. Uh, a dude. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think the, the, the quality of content on the Fox News Network that I find newsworthy is not much. 
But every time we engage one of their Fox News radio reporters or personalities, it's intriguing, it's informative, it's smart. And and I, I just think there is a, a great market for that. There was a period of time, and Josh, I think, can, can tell you this, Josh would bring the list, and I'd be more interested in some of the um some of the personalities than some of the reporters. The reporters have earned my respect. I mean, they really the Evan Browns of the world, the Jeff Manassos of the world, the Ryan Schmelz um, comes on our show every day. I just think they offer a perspective that a radio show host does not. I mean, I have a job. My job is to remain popular and create a listenership and and an audience that attracts advertisers. That's the the method of this madness. Those guys are in the business of news. And I think sprinkling some serious news in our show helps. I mean, it adds quality to content. And um, and I think Josh will agree. There was a time that I kind of, not dismissed, but I was not as interested in the Eben Browns of the world. I am now. Because th- those folks have won me over. I mean, they're first-rate reporters. They give first-rate accountings. I do believe at times they get a little bit nervous about the conversations we have that um well it, it tur- it's a report turns into a conversation and some enjoy it more more than others. There's a couple just shut it down. I mean they, they, they'll detect right quick. I mean very quick. Hey, this guy's a radio show host. Uh, I need to stop yeah, here. Not going there. I mean I'd like to be a radio show host, <laughs> but Fox doesn't pay me to be a radio show host. And these guys, the more controversial they are, the better they do. I'm not in that business. I mean if I'm Evan Brown, I don't have any content to be controversial. I want to be accurate and informative and interesting uh, to some degree. And, and, and if you think about this, you know, John Decker came from Fox News Radio. He was one of the reporters that was offered to us, and we you know, developed a rapport with John. And when he left Fox, uh, we stayed in touch and then put together a new deal when he went with great television. I've got a theory on Decker and Brown. I think they enjoy this because it's not as buttoned up. I mean, it, it allows them to express themselves a little more freely. i got to believe there are very tight guardrails on what those people oh, you know. can do in their official responsibilities when they when they talk to a talk radio host and audience i think they realize i can't lose my mind here but i can be a little more creative in how i articulate whatever point of view or whatever subject we're trying to to um to debate take a break back in a few 843-661 i like the breaks just for the bumpers <laughs> I, mean, I wish we could just play bumper music after bumper music after after bumper music. You've done good, Josh, but I don't think there's a sincere bone in your body. I really <laughs> and truly don't. See, um, there's that, there's uh, that evil laugh. It's, it's a diabolical laugh. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> these guys are a little bit, they're not as old and senile as Biden, but they're close. <laughs> they're, they're, and they're, they, they believe that I'm one of these, you know, um, virtuous, true souls. The only flaw I see in Josh is he doesn't know who he wants the dictator to be. I don't have a problem with him wanting a dictator. He's just not decided who he wants that dictator to be. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Sam and Cross Hill. Good morning. Uh, good morning, fellas. Uh, I'm going to have to uh, uh, give you my opinion about the greatest music of all time. It's the music I grew up with, and that's the great soul sounds that came out of the late 50s, 60s, and early 70s. But uh, the reason I'm calling is, Ken, when you were out politicking, did you ever give campaign speeches in churches? Uh, I gave a, I spoke in churches. Um, I gave a campaign speech 
in an African-American church when I ran for county council in 2004. And it was a campaign speech. And the person in the church that was helping me told me, don't tiptoe, be political. And I did. But other than that, I've never given a political speech in a church. Now, I've given my testimony. I've talked about as part of my testimony, you know, running for office and whatnot. But that's the only time I gave a political speech in the sanctuary of a church. Well, as I understand the uh, tax law, a church is a 501c3 organization, and it's subject to the loss of its tax exemption if it engages in political activity. And yesterday, uh, the president, uh, acting president, gave one of the most political speeches you ever might want to hear in an African-American church at uh, Mother Emanuel. And I don't know if you uh, heard any of that or heard anything about that, but it was a, he, he attacked, of course, his opponent and uh, had the congregation shouting four more years, four more years and whatnot. So um, I guess, and I do know that I'm, I'm, I've always heard that the African-American church is one of the political uh, venues. No, it's uh, not one of, it is the, it is, it the, is the political power in the Democrat party. I mean, that, that in the South in particular, and Sam, I'll say this, when I was asked to speak at a church, they always kind of, um, they, they warned me on the front end, don't get too political. You could put our tax exempt status in at risk. And I knew that. And it would be about, you know, um, God led me here and God led me there. And I talk a little bit about my sister and my parents and how I ended up where I, where I ended up. Um, but, but I've always, I mean, I'll tell you what, I've spent a lot of my life in politics searching for the exemption that I still can't find on Democrats and African-American churches and political activism. Because you're right, the IRS code is very, is very clear and very concise, and there is no ambiguity. But when it comes to Democrats speaking in African-American churches, there's apparently an unwritten exemption that the rules don't apply. So rules, rules for thee, but not for me. Uh, we, we should be accustomed to that by now. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. Sam. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I know leaders of churches that are bothered by the double standard. I don't want to call names, but I know leaders of churches who are deeply bothered by, you know, they abide, they try to not be as political. Uh, I mean, they encourage people to vote. And they, they tell you they're, you know, the pulpit will speak on abortion and gay rights and, and some of the others. But in the African-American church, and I've spoken to a African-American church when I ran as a Republican. Uh, in fact, this is pretty bizarre. One of the pastors endorsed me in an African-American church uh, as a Republican. And, uh, you know, that uh, it was uh, it was pretty wild. Um, but when I spoke at that church, the uh, the elders of the church said, you know, I know what the rules say, but don't worry about it. We got your back you know, tell people what, why you want to be the council member and, and what you're going to try and do if you are allowed to be the council member. And there was no concern whatsoever about r laws and rules and regulations. And I spent a good bit of my life looking for the exemption that applies to African-American churches and Democrat candidates. I've yet to find one. Let's go to the phone. Barry in Hey, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Enjoyed the show. Uh, Kim, what's your thoughts? I'm going to tee up for tomorrow. Uh, Fannie Willis hiring her romantic boyfriend that's never prosecuted a RICO case and paying him $654,000 in Georgia with your boy Brian Kemp down there and not doing anything about it. 
Y'all have a great day. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, I think your opinion would be similar to, to my opinion. It's no different than some of these uh, members of Congress, Democrats in particular, who pay family members, you know, large sums of money to do things like media buy and advise and run a certain organization. That would probably be the best way to get us to total chaos. If the media were sincerely and truly trying to do a better job of reporting and telling us the facts and truth uh, about what's going on, they would tell us bluntly and candidly how many family members of elected officials are feeding at the trough of government largesse. I mean, that, that would be kind of an interesting argument. It's, it's in excess of a 1,000. I mean, it's wives and husbands and brothers and sisters and daughters and sons. I mean, all are benefiting enormously. It's not just Hunter and Joe Biden. I mean, I think Josh has said this. Do I believe Hunter and Joe are a part of a crime family? Yeah. Do I believe the Biden family is much different than the majority of families that have been in Washington a long time? Probably not. I mean, they're probably no different than the Schumers or the McConnells or the Romneys or whomever else out there that has made not just a name in politics, but amassed financial fortunes based on, you know, peddling influence or transacting in the name of our federal government. Is there a call? Let's go there. Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. Good morning, guys. Hey, I got I to gotta say something. You know I'm not Christian, but this is where me and Christians join forces. When I had the temple in Arkansas, we actually linked up with churches, Christian churches, in rebellion of that whole idea of separation of church and state. Because even the two guys that were responsible for that happening said they never meant it to affect the church. And it is the job of the leader of the church, no matter what denomination you are, to lead your people. That is his job. So I would encourage every church, regardless of denomination and and affiliation, to get political in church and literally lead their people. Because there's so many people out there that don't know on their own. And they need somebody to explain things to them. So I, I would I would encourage anyone to rebel against that just as hard as possible. Because when it comes down to it, the the federal government has no right to tell the church not to lead their people. So have a good one. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. See, I kind of agree with Bert there. I think to expect the Democrats and African American church to stop what they've always done is a bit naive. I mean, I think some of the more conservative oriented tr- churches that are largely Republican. I mean, I, yeah, go go out and become activist. I mean, just, just you know, in the face of the IRS, in the face of the, face of the tax code, I mean, the double standard, selective prosecuting, I guess, would be would be the argument um, that you'd make. But but remember, guys, when we began the show, or sometime after congratulating Michigan, we talked a little bit about the, um, the rule of law or the rule of power. I mean, the rule of law is one thing. The rule of power is quite the other. And I think the Republicans have spent a good bit of their time concerned, I didn't say obeying, concerned about the consequence of the break in the rule of law when the Democrats are all about the rule of power. How do we win? Doesn't matter what we do. How do we win? Have a good day. We'll talk tomorrow.